Hi and welcome to the We Needed Roho Roads podcast and if you can't tell by the obnoxious bells, it's Christmas time. And things have certainly changed around here. I remember when this was all farmland as far as the eye could see. Old Mr Peabody owned all of this. He had this crazy idea of breeding pine trees. Yes, David, I found a vaguely connected Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> and now, David, what is your terrible Christmas joke that even budget cracker makers will have turned down? Oh, uh, you know, it's not a Christmas joke. I didn't plan that. It's not I mean, a Christmas joke. It should have been, shouldn't it? Uh, I dropped the ball there. I dropped the tinsel. It's gone. Oh. Um, I, well, 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 anyway, the joke is, uh, Neil, how did the hacker get away from the police? How did the hacker get away from the police? He ran somewhere. <laughs> well, that's I, I really was, I, good. I, I, that one's that one's for my hacker friend. That one out there, he listens. That one's for you, man. You know who you are. I get him to hack into the Twitter account. He probably knows who everyone is. To be fair, if he's a hacker. Um, well, I was expecting that. I was expecting your uh, Christmas joke to be bad, and what I got was a non, uh, was a bad non-Christmas joke. Well, David, I have a Christmas question for you. Okay. Who is the best Christmas Chris? Now think, you've got Pratt, you've got Hemsworth, etc. And many more. Who is the best Christmas Chris? The best Christmas Chris? Like movie Chris? Best like as in a... Movie Chris, yeah. Uh, and, uh, O'Dowell. And why? Who? Chris O'Dowell, I think that's his name, isn't it? Chris O'Dowell? Yeah, that's what well, the guy from with... the IT crowd. Yep, that's why. Because no, it... he's so jolly. David... You just like you want to give him a cuddle all the time. He's so jolly. <laughs> No, you, once again, you, your arrows are way off the mark. It's Chris Pine, like the tree. Uh, Christmas. Chris Pine yeah, is okay, the best Christmas enough. Chris. Fair oh, enough. That, that, was, that was good enough to be a cruise ship entertainer director's joke there, man. And after all that, well, this is our review of the year, a.k.a. our top 10 TV shows and movies of the year list. And, and it was going to be our top 10 movies and our top 10 TV shows in separate lists, David. But what happened? Well, okay, no, no. Don't try and twist the facts yeah. here, Neil. Right, we've been planning... How long have we been planning this? Yeah? About two months. And I mess- I've been messaging you, and it's like, it's the top ten, and it's all in one. And you're like, yeah, 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 that's what we're doing. And then, no, and then what happens? T- we get, to, the, we get you- to just five seconds ago, and it's... Uh, so it's all in one list, right? And you're like, no, 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 we're doing our top tens of films, and then we're doing our top tens of TV shows. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. I've done it. It's all in one list. Yeah, and and I think I think the WhatsApp did say something along the lines of Neil, are we doing the top ten TV shows and movies in one pod? And I was like, yes, in one episode we will do the top ten TV episodes and top ten films. Yeah, there was miscommunication somewhere down there. Yeah. There was there was, there there was we... definitely a a lack of communication. So rather than have all our good stuff go to waste that I've done, what we're going to do is I'm going to run through my top ten TV shows. And top 10 films. And then when David has a corresponding number to what I have in either of my list, he will then jump in with his uh, corresponding film or TV show. I do also have a long girlish of them, which I'm going to throw in as well as just like lower numbers. But they're not tiered. I'll have to think on the spot of where I want to put them in the tier list because I've tiered mine in like a specific way now. I put a lot of thought and effort into this. Because I didn't just, like, you know, it was difficult for me doing these top tens because it's the whole entertainment versus, like, how much you actually enjoyed it versus is it a good film. And I've gone with a max, sorry, with a mixture of 
entertainment and good film, but more pushing towards how much I actually enjoyed it as a f- film or TV show. I think we've established that on this pod that any sort of top 10 list, it has to be personal enjoyment versus, oh, well, everyone else thinks that's a great film, therefore we should put it in there. And I think we've kind of shown from our previous list that that's what we're kind of doing. Yeah. So, uh, okay, so we're going to start with TV shows then. And, well, um, I'm going to start with my long list of TV shows. So these are shows that I did enjoy a lot, but they just missed out on my top 10. And first up, David, I've got Squid Game. Spoilers. Where we're going, there are nothing but spoilers. Yeah, that was going to make, that didn't make my top 10. But I, it would have, it would have, if I'd have had a longer, if I'd have actually done a top <laughs> ten of <laughs> So it's going to be there somewhere. <laughs> I think it was quite eye-opening for a large majority of people who don't watch foreign TV uh, movies, um, and I think that's, and so you know, it's 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 um, a success is really quite a strange one for me. But also, it did feel like a longer version of Battle Royal to me in places. I mean, there were numerous plot holes, and the VIPs that were quite terrible in it. I mean, but bar those kind of main three things there, they're my only kind of criticisms of the show. And I think those were, those things right there were what stopped it from getting into my top ten. I mean, as we said on the last pod, uh, we're very excited about where season two is going to go. And we're hoping that our, our main guy goes a bit John Wick on the uh, game uh, game runners, as it were. Yeah, I think like it's beautiful. Oh, the yeah. social commentary that you, that's in it is so like stark and well done. Um, now, we, we spoke about this on our last podcast with our boy Charlie, didn't we? So, plug, if you want to hear what we think more about uh, It's a very good one, very, very that, good one. Go listen to that one uh, as well. Next up, I've got Line of Duty Season 6, the sixth and maybe final, as we're still waiting for Jim Curio to confirm. Um, and this was like the biggest police drama in years in the UK. And um, it was one of probably the most hotly debated shows of early 2021, because they had a multi-year arc that was finally resolved, but with what many people generally thought was... A largely unsatisfying ending. So, I mean, I, I wasn't one of these people who didn't like the ending. I thought it worked in the context of the show and I saw what they were trying to do. Um, but I think ending it on a kind of a wet fart, again, stopped it from getting into my top shows, as it were. You know, it wasn't, you, you're, you're waiting for this big, this big reveal, this big twist, and it's like, not. And you're like, oh, I get it. You know, like, police corruption is just more mundane and... Um, it's wait. It was that hapless guy that all. Oh, like, but, yeah, but he was yeah, so useless. Uh, I haven't actually watched it, but I remember that's what you it said. It was him. Yeah, I mean there'll be a spo- there'll be a spoiler Spoilers, warning at the start of the podcast, man. Wait, no, I had a nine. I had a number nine. Sorry, I had a number nine that was on my list. No, this is my long list. These are shows that just. Oh, I thought I thought you were doing your top ten. Yeah, yeah. These are shows that just missed is out. Just, should, so oh, number nine. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay, no, okay. Not number nine. Now, now you've got me doing it. Ah, and and start again. <laughs> no. I swear you started no, saying number started 10. it with number 10. Squid Game with, is not number 10. Um, Line of Duty is not in my top 10. And the oh. next show not in my top 10 is White Lotus. Right, so that's Mike White's show set in Hawaii about a group of unlikable rich people being unlikable rich people at an exclusive resort in Hawaii. Uh, the MPV of the show was slowly fraying manager and resort played brilliantly by Murray Bartlett. Never has white privilege been so skewered so perfectly. And uh, it looks like we might actually get more different seasons of this show, but set at different White Lotus resorts around the world. Um, that was on, I think it was on Sky Atlantic, David. So again, if you want a show about people being dicks to each other that isn't Succession, that's the one to have a look at. Um, we got Ted Lasso Season 2. That, again, didn't make my top 10. The nicest show of 2020 came back for its second season, with much more focus on the characters and the relationships, and much less football, which for me actually wasn't as great. 
Brett Goldenstein's Roy Kent is still the foul-mouthed heart of the show, and somehow the show morphed from a 30-minute comedy into a 50-minute emotional drama. Uh, there were two standalone episodes they did um, as extra episodes that really didn't add a lot to the season. One was essentially a Love Actually ripoff, and the other one, Beard After Dark, is widely regarded as probably the show's <laughs> worst ever episode, despite it being an obvious tribute to uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Um, it is still a brilliant show, but I think without a major antagonist like Rebecca was in season one, the show went too far into the emotional spectrum and not enough on the plot for me this season. Although there is a great twist with a certain character in it that, again, as you haven't seen it yet, David, I'm not going to spoil for you. I'm not going to lie. I'm probably not going to watch it either. I genuinely enjoyed the first season. I started the second season and I, and I was just like, why did I enjoy this so much the first time around? Because it's a nice show. It's a nice show. And everyone needed a nice show last year. Um, also, just missing out, um, but probably made, might have made my top 10, depending on how it ends. Hawkeye. Hawkeye, David. This is a buddy cop show that Marvel have been trying to make uh, since yes. the wet fart of Falcon in the Winter Soldier. Right? Haley Steinfeld's excitable Hawkeye super... That's the second time you've used uh, wet fart. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just realising. Well, you know, it is what it is, man. It, for, for, Falcon in the Winter Soldier... <laughs> it's a wet fart, yeah. For, no. Falcon in the Winter Soldier was definitely one of these. <laughs> It was pretty pants, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as we said uh, months ago, it, it was its heart was in the right place. It's just execution wasn't done too well. Um, yeah, they, that was a follow through. Yeah. <laughs> they sharted it. And Hayley Steinfeld plays excitable Hawkeye superfan Kate Bishop, and she gets involved with some of Clint's old organised crime friends from his Ronin days. Um, and that brings him out of semi-retirement to help Kate out of the trouble she's in that he was ultimately responsible for in the first place. And you know what? It's, it's very low-stakes Marvel, it kind of reminds me of like the first Tom Holland Spider-Man when it was just a small story about you know Michael Keaton's Birdman trying to steal stuff. It wasn't like world-ending um, consequences for the story, and that's exactly what this is. The whole thing is just based around look, he just wants to get home for Christmas with his family. That's it. But he's got because he's such a good guy, he's got to hang around and. Uh, like the, the, you haven't really got top tier villains in this yet, David. You, they are cool <laughs> because he's such a good guy. You know, he's only a serial killer yeah well they that's they just, that's yeah, but it's but it's lovable he has a family so and also okay. they have a, they have a, a dog with a dodgy eye called pizza dog so you know adding to the marvel coterie of brilliant animals in the thing so you had four frog and now you've got pizza dog um <laughs> and also don't forget a uh, goose from uh captain marvel but yeah, it's, it, it does. It's, it really leans heavily into like the the Shane Black vibes. It's set at Christmas. It's got echoes of Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. And um, I've seen the first four of these, and the first two were good. Um, and then the next couple, uh, three and four, have been probably second only to WandaVision in the MCU this year in terms of their TV output. And um, just missing out, just missing out. This was going to be in my top ten, David, but it got bumped at the last minute. Okay. Was Hellbound? Okay. This. Oh, I finished okay. watching it now. So this um, is a, yet another South Korean show taking the world by storm in a minute. And I'd argue it ultimately is better than Squid Game um, with less episodes. There's only six. And it deals with visions appearing to people all over Korea telling them they're going to die and their souls are bound for hell. Uh, I briefly mentioned the show on the last step and it's a show of two parts really over six episodes. The first three deal with the rise of these occurrences and how society deals with them in its infancy, and then how this cult of the new truth begins to take hold over everyone in the government. In the final three episodes, we have a time jump to where we see what has fully become of the new truth, and how their religious zealotism is kind of a danger to everyone, and what would happen if someone who was completely innocent 
received this decree and were told they were going to die. Would that change the current status quo or would the new truth try to hide, ironically, the truth? It's a really brilliant meditation on religious fear and has a lot in common with um, The Ring, The Leftovers and Midnight Mass. So um, it's only six episodes, David. I think you're going to like it when you get around to it. I was going to say, what you said earlier in a previous podcast, it sounds like The Ring except without the phone call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a, gi- a giant floating head turns up and tells you you're going to hell in like whenever. But it's not always seven days. It could be like, there's one that's like, you're going to die in 30 seconds. And like, the guy's like, what? And there's another one where it's like over <laughs> years and things like that. So uh it's very good, man. I mean, I, it's not obviously not as talky um, as Midnight Mass, but you know, you know what, what what was this year, right? So I think I'm on to my number ten. Uh, do you have a number ten TV show, David, or was it a film? No. Okay, no, I don't. But I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a one that I'm gonna think of off the top of my head that didn't make my list, and I'm gonna put One Division in there. One Division okay. didn't make your list. No, no. Well, because I was doing a top ten of everything, so I had movies and it would have probably made my top ten list if I hadn't. Um, Got the assignment wrong. Done it. Yeah, well, if I was told correctly in the first place, it would have been in there somewhere. Okay. But maybe not in the order. But anyway, yeah, One Division, that was a lovely show, except for the first like two episodes. Where I had no problem with any of it and thought it was all really good and got better as it went on. Um, so my number 10, David, is Mythic Quest Season 2 on Apple+. Plus. Um, have you seen any okay, of Mythic yeah. Quest yet? You've been banging on about that for ages, man. You've, you've been banging. Yeah, you, say, you keep saying it's really good and I keep not watching yeah. it. For no reason, Yeah, really. and you've got Apple Plus, right? Because you watched Ted Lasso, so just get it again, man. So, uh, my, yeah, my number 10 at Mythic Quest, uh, made by Rob McElhinney, Megan Gantz, and Charlie Day. Now, the second season of their comedy about a game developer's company who make an online MMORPG uh, called Mythic Quest. Now, season one dealt with the power clash between uh, McElhinney's Ian, pronounced Ian because he's a dick, and uh, Charlotte McCall's lead programmer, Poppy Lee. And she's the person who has to actually create all of his crazy ideas. Now, prior to season two official, we had two special episodes done during the height of the pandemic. Uh, the first one, Quarantine, was literally done through Zoom and uh, really hammered home what life was like for many people last year. I mean, you think how many people and shows tried doing a quarantine episode and they just weren't very well done. Whereas Mythic Quest just absolutely nailed it. You know, there was all the stuff with people interrupting Zoom calls, not knowing how filters work, uh, playing games and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> And um, did you see that one of that like U.S. senator that was a cat or something? Yeah, <laughs> in court. they they, act, they did this. They do that in Mythic Quest. They literally like reference it, man, in, in the show. Oh, that was so uh, funny. But it, it had it had a really surprising and touching ending, while still being really sharp. Um, next up as well, they had another special uh, called Everlight, which featured the cast coming back to the work after the pandemic, and they kind of deal with getting back to normal in that. And so they have a LARPA party, and it's got a voiceover from Anthony Hopkins himself. Um, and of course, next time we're in the same place and space, David. Anytime someone yells the word fireball, duck. I mean, that to be fair, that's generally good advice anyway, really. Um, if someone yells fireball, well, a fireball's D and D, so yeah, you you fucked if you got a fireball. Well, it's a tennis ball when it hits her right in the face repeatedly because she keeps she's like she keeps that's it she keeps going yelling fireball and trying to throw this ball at someone and she gets taken out every time because she's just not fast enough. <sighs> um, but season two progressed with Ian and Poppy. Uh, taking over their own expansions rather than working together like they're supposed to. You've got Brad, um, played by Danny Pudi from Community. So it's Abed playing a... a he's the, like the money guy at the company, and he's a bit of a scumbag. And then, of course, to make him a bit more like we'll be bringing his even more of a scumbag brother. You've got the two game testers, Rachel and Dana, and their relationship's coming along nicely with a few bumps in the road. Um, there's a character called David. David. Is he the best character? Uh, I mean, he'd think he is, but... Um, 
Oh, you know he no, is. All right. He's you, the best. Is he ha- he's handsome? Have you seen it? He's a good looking man. You've seen it's always sunny in Philadelphia, right? A few episodes. Yeah. You know, you know the homeless guy, R- Rickety Cricket. No, right. Well, head, no. that's him. They're the actor who plays him. Oh, okay. But to be fair, he's one of the producers of It's Sunny, and he's a producer of this show. But he's kind of like the guy who's having to like actually manage it all and deals directly with the head office. But everyone just ignores him, and he's a bit of, he's a bit of a wimp. He's got a monstrous assistant, this young young girl called Joe, who's just like basically a psychopath. And in season two, she turns even further to the dark side and becomes Brad's assistant instead. Also, you've got um, a guy called CW, who's like the old sci-fi writer who writes the writes the storylines for the games. He's like a Mercury Award-winning, no, was it Saturn Award-winning sci-fi writer who'd written one book that was a hit, and he is played by F. Murray Abraham, like the you know the Oscar winner for Amadeus Man. Uh, you recognise him when you see him, but he spent because of his age, obviously, okay. he spent most of the season just phoning in from Zoom due to his age and obviously COVID concerns. But once again, this show, just like in season one, it did a couple of standalone episodes that were a two-parter and they delved into um, the writer's backstory and how he become an award-winning writer and why his career never took off as as it should have afterwards. And once again, they brought in three brand new actors, like obviously new younger actors to play the younger versions, uh, Josh Brenner, Michael Cassidy and Shelley Hennig as the young CW, Peter Cromwell and A.E. Goldsmith. And uh, just like season one's episode, they did a standalone one called A Quiet Dark Death. And it was just brilliant TV, man, and not enough people saw it. I mean, uh, M- Mythic Quest at its peak in show- episodes like that, it competes with any of the best shows out there. Um, but the good news is as well, it has been renewed for a third and fourth series. So you just got the 20 episodes to catch up on now, David. That's a lot when you've, when you've got, when there's a whole other list of shit that you're asking me to do as well. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, sorry. What was, what was you? I was going to say, what is your number nine? Because apparently, your number nine is it? Number number nine is a TV show as well. But I'm going to bump it up to number eight to mention my TV show that just came to the top of my head now from Apple TV, which Plus, is which was Calls. Calls. Oh, Do you remember no. Calls? I was telling you about Calls really no. early on. Did you? You never no. watched it, did you? I genuinely really enjoyed calls. It was like Black Mirror, but they were all phone but, calls. But without any video. I have an attention span of like, of like 10 minutes without... And they were all like 10, 15 minute long episodes. It was brilliant. You could just throw it on. Like I was like, like you've got something in the oven that's going to take, you know, like 20 minutes. You just throw on calls. And it, was, and it was genuinely really engrossing. And some of it was so emotional. And the voice acting on it was so on point. It was beautiful. It's on Apple TV Plus, Neil. It'll take literally... Like, you could watch the whole thing in probably two hours. Definitely worth it. Brilliant show. <sighs> Can't believe that made your top 10 TV shows, man. That's... Yeah, because yeah, it, it came to the top... Like, yeah, right there. And whatever number nine is has gone up one. But I, I genuinely loved it. And if we're making a top 10 of something that we enjoyed... Like you know, properly enjoyed. Then one hundred percent calls was there for me. I loved it. Even like all the wiggly little lines on the on the on the screen. Yeah, great. So your favorite one of your favorite TV shows is basically a radio player or a live podcast. It's a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, loved it. Brilliant. It was brilliant. Okay, well that's kind of on brand. So uh, right, my number nine uh, TV show then is, and this is the one that bumped Hellbound out of the list. Brand new to Sky Atlantic, and it is Yellow Jackets. And um, we were talking a little bit about beforehand about this david um have i sold you on it yet uh yeah you did actually because i quite like the concept of the t- different timelines and how like it sounds a lot like how arrow no was it's, it's nothing seasons. at all like arrow it's so much better what well, we've, we've because, got the two different because you're comparing happening. it to arrow when i would compare it to lost 
which is infinitely the better. Oh, well, I never really watched oh, Lost. Yeah. I only watched Lost like a season. Is that because you was like twelve then when they came out or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, was, yeah. it's something that I need to. So get let's back. Exp- back to the island. We need to go back. Um, that's a Lost line. If people have watched it, you know what that is. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. So making a late run into my list is Showtime in America, Sky Atlantic in the UK's new show Yellow Jacket. As and as we said, it's a mix of Lost, Alive, and Lord of the Flies, and that's still really only describing about half the show. The basic plot involves a girls' soccer team crashing somewhere deep in the Canadian wilderness and going a bit crazy. Now, the show jumps back and forth between the mid-90s crash scenes aftermath and the modern day. And usually in this type of show, you would find that the one storyline would be better than the other. But here, both are truly excellent due to some fantastic casting and mysteries set up in the modern day storyline. In the present day, someone is nosing around and trying to find out what really happened when the girls are trapped there. And uh, people start turning up dead. Now, standouts of the young cast are Ella Pernell as a spiky Jackie. She's the team's captain. And the fact that we don't see her in the modern day settings yet implies she doesn't make it. Also brilliant is uh, Sophie Nies as Shauna, who's her best friend. And uh, you've got the really memorable Sammy Hamretty as a team's resident weirdo Misty. I'm not even sure what her, role, uh, her, her job is, David. I think she's like the assistant coach manager or something like that. I think she's like the girl they have to just do admin and somehow ended up as part of the team. And she's a weirdo. Proper weird. Proper okay. Yeah, you take her on on trips, don't you? Like that, they, they turn up to match yeah, days. Yeah, okay, so that's where you go. But um, the, <laughs> the next master stroke of the casting is all the iconic '90s teen actresses at the time playing older versions of themselves now, and uh, the casting's brilliant. You've got Kiwi actress Melanie Linsky, who you will know when you see her, David. Yet you won't remember what she's been in before, but she made her name as a murderous teenager in Peter Jackson's Off the Forgotten. Heavenly Creatures, alongside her just starting out Kate Winslet. And she plays the older version of Shauna quite brilliantly. She's all like frustrated suburban soccer mum. Oh, that's funny because, you know, she was a soccer player. Didn't even think of that when I wrote that out. Uh, but yeah, she's like suburban soccer mum with a very, very, very dark edge, as we quickly see in a couple of early scenes. You've got Juliette Lewis, who plays the older um, version of Natalie. And she's like, you know, she was like the one who was smoking weed and like doing drugs and drinking all the time. She's like the burnout. And of course, She's just Juliette Lewis, who just plays her to perfection. She's all drinking, snarls, and rehab. You know, perfect casting for this character. And of course, the one that surprised me the most, 90s child star Christina Ricci, is almost unrecognisable as the grown-up and even more deranged version of the team's resident weirdo, Misty. And do you know what, mate? It was two, three episodes in that I finally twigged that Misty was Christina Ricci, because I kept seeing her name on the credits with the and I was like, when's she going to turn up in it? (laughs) <laughs> and then I googled the show and I was like, "Wait, yeah, she just she she inhabits the character that she's been in it the whole yeah, time. She was dead the whole time. No, she was a ghost the whole time. No, I just, I, but yeah, I was just watching. I was like, she's that good. I couldn't see past the character. So that was really good, man. Um, the show does cast a massively wide net in terms of its scope. Some scenes are like teen drama, others are like something out of Saw. Then you got suddenly something like a prestige drama, something out of Saw. Yeah, there's violence. There's a lot of there's a few bits of ultraviolence. What, like torture porn? Well, there's a, there's a few like montages of like bad shit happening near the start. Um, so you so you know it's coming at some point in the 90s stuff, I'm assuming. Right, um, okay. Yeah, man. And then, then it'll go from a scene like that to, you know, like suburban housewife drama, like Big Little Lies. Uh, but also, you know, still done really well. The tone of the show is all over the place. And uh, I think that's where some people have like complained about that. But for me, the show is so fast moving and entertaining throughout. The tonal changes don't really bother me. And in fact, I think a strength. That's a, I think it's a strength of the show. And uh, finally, whoever is choosing the music for the '90s scenes has done a fantastic job so far. Uh, we're only four episodes in so far, 
And uh, already we had the Smashing Pumpkins classic today opening the first episode. My band used to play that song, so that's awesome. Uh, you've got music from Alanis Morissette, Liz Fair, Hole, PG, PJ Harvey, Tracy Bonham. She had a number one forgotten hit called Mother Mother. And the second I heard that song, I was like, I don't remember that song from years ago when I was young. And also some titans of the genre, such as um, Jane's Addiction and Dinosaur Jr. And David, finally a music supervisor in a, in a, in a, in a series who realises the iconic greatness of one of the best songs one hit wonders ever, Snow's Informer. You must know that song, David. Sing it, sing it to me now. All I would say is, I'm not singing though. I I don't actually think I could legally get away with singing the song now because Snow was a white guy rapping like a Jamaican in the 90s. Right. Um, no, anyway. I'm definitely not. No, um, I will say, I, I'll just take a sample <laughs> lyric for you. It, basically, he's like Informer and then he goes, a licky boom boom down. That's literally one of the main like chorus lyrics. Yes. It sounds awful. Um, it is, but it will be stuck in your head for years once you hear it. But I'm um, also... Like Baby Shark. I'm uh, I, I'm lucky that I've generally avoided it a lot. Um, but, yeah, um, so actually, if you go on Spotify, the official Yellow Jackets playlist is there, and they just keep adding to it every episode. So, um, yeah, um, I'm... This, do you know what? This might have been even higher in my list if I'd had if we'd had more than four episodes so far. There are ten in total to air. So, hopefully... it. What if it completely drops the ball? Well, that's why it's at number nine. You're only four episodes yeah, that's in, what, but it, man. You've got to get to... What if you get to, like, the sixth episode and it's Then I'll be like, well, it dropped the ball. Then it should have... Hellbound should have been in my list instead. Um, right. So you have a number eight then, David. Eight, a number I eight do, TV I show. I do, which was my number nine on my overall list as a TV show. And it's Loki. Ah, you remember Loki, yeah. the pesky little guy? Do you know what? Yeah, that's I on my list. I actually completely forgot about Loki. It's, oh, yeah, no. I like I liked Loki because I think one of the biggest problems that the MCU has for me at the moment, especially with these TV shows, is, and you touched upon it with Hawkeye, mm-hmm. is that the stakes, you can't go from having world universe ending stakes with, um, with Thanos and then go to, you know, oh, there's just a couple of terrorists in uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I have you know it they were called flag smashers, like, David, and and yeah, who cares? And I don't even think they smashed flags. But with Loki, you genuinely felt like it has it was really important to the MCU going forward. You feel like if you didn't watch Loki, you'd feel like you missed out on some key information that might be prevalent in the movies to come in Phase Four, five, four, so five. In that, in that uh, phase, what's wait? What phase is coming up? I don't know. In the next phase of the MC, whichever phase we're in at the moment, um, you know, like it's just the same with Spider-Man coming up. You know, you know, Spider-Man's going to be amazing and it's going to have massive implications. Well, we, we are seeing forward. Spider-Man in a couple of days, David. So yeah, very excited. I'm just, know, I'm, I'm, which is, which probably would have made our thing, maybe, yeah. maybe. I mean, it's, it's. it's I'm just hoping um, they don't drop the ball on it, man. They've got a lot of balls to juggle, um, a lot of balls. Yeah, yeah. Don't yes, uh, but anyway, Loki. yeah, but no, it, it, it was yeah, no, it, it was fantastic. Like the 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 riffing that Tom Hiddleston had and yeah. Owen Wilson in those scenes, sitting down in a room, was some of the best. Like it almost felt unscripted. Was it unscripted? No, I don't know. It was definitely it, scripted. It, it felt so natural as a conversation between these two yeah. characters. Let's just and, not give the Reddit just the overarching world at like building uh, that that was going on. Some like it really. I mean, was. yeah. I mean, spoilers. Kang! Great. And, and, and the Kang. ending was like, bam, yeah, Kang. 
at the end. And but it was it was all I genuinely really enjoyed. I it. mean, yeah, Jonathan Majors really like knocked it out of the park there. And of course, we'll be seeing him next in Ant Man: Quantum Mania. Yes, you know, which oh, feels like it's forever away. Well, they're still yeah. making it. That's why. Do you know who else has just been added to the cast well, of Quantum Mania? Yeah. Bill Murray. Bill Murray really? in the MCU confirmed. That's, a, that's an odd one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I liked Loki. I, I I just I just completely slipped my mind when I was thinking. About it. I think because it was like earlier in the year. I think I always rated One Division above Loki anyway. Um, Falcon was. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, and I mean, we'll talk about that later. Good. Like, like I mentioned, it had the same sort of. You feel like it actually had implications going forward with the MCU, whereas we have. I haven't had that with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I didn't. I'm, and I'm assuming it's going to be the same with Hawkeye. I haven't started Hawkeye, but what you've said about it. Earlier. So far, you've got very low stakes bad guys in Hawkeye. They're tracksuit mafia, which is actually their name. <laughs> Um, yeah. And they just generic. That sounds awful. They're, no, but they're entertaining. The tracksuit mafia. Right, okay, I'll just tell you one little thing about them. There's a bit where they've got Hawkeye and uh, Kate tied up and they're trying to interrogate them. And then they're like, it's taken ages. And then one of them walks up and starts having an argument with his girlfriend on his on the phone about getting tickets for Imagine Dragons. And the way she just cuts him down about, like, <laughs> it's just such a good comeback. And I can't remember what it was. But it's really funny, man. It, Hawkeye, it's, it's, it is, I, um, I, it's low stakes, but it just it's. But there are hints that they may be tying in David some of their Netflix characters from Daredevil potentially into that, and also there's rumours about that for Spider Man right. as well, isn't there? Yeah, with uh, yeah, 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 Charlie with, Cox um, potentially. Matt yeah, Murdoch. so yeah, there, yeah, there are there's um I, uh, there are rumours surrounding that where we're going to go with Hawkeye, and obviously with Hawkeye as well. Okay. You've seen Black Widow, haven't you? No, not yet. No, it's all, it is on Disney Plus oh right now, so I, I'm going to well, watch well, it soon. And I still haven't seen Eternals, which comes to Disney Plus in January. Yeah. Something the twelfth yeah, yeah. came out over day, that news, and that made me happy. <laughs> right. So yeah, but I mean, yeah, Loki, Loki, good show, man. Uh, okay, moving on because this is going to be a eighteen hour podcast otherwise. Uh, so my number eight is yet also another Disney Plus show, David. And it's uh, eight, only eight episodes, and it's already been renewed for a second series, and it is Reservation Dogs. Okay. What do you know? About, wh- okay, tell me about it. I don't. I don't really know anything. Right. About it. Well, once again, we can fi- we can thank his whitetiness, King Tacker, for uh, teaming up with Native American filmmaker Sterling Harjo to get Res Dogs on screen. Now, this is a brilliant coming of age comedy drama about a group of four low level criminal teenagers called Bear. Uh, Cheese, Willie Jack, and yes, David, Alora Denan. Do you know who Alora? I'm already, I'm already invested just with the character names alone. They were brilliant. You can't have a guy called Willie Jack and not enjoy that. I think (laughs) not enjoy that. Willie Jack's a girl, so that's that's good. So, ah, even better. And um, Alora Denan, David, is the name of the baby in Willow. (laughs) So apparently, they were the characters. Parents were fans of big fans of Willow, so she gets called that. Um, now a through line for what the film? Yeah, Willow, yeah, yeah with, the baby. With, with uh... oh, it's been so long since I've seen that film. I mean, you probably could have been the baby in Willow because it's that old. Anyway, yeah. So the fr- the through line through the first season is that one of their best friends, Daniel, had recently died. So at times hilariously funny and oftentimes melancholically sad. That would be enough for most shows, um, like Resident. Res- that would be enough for most shows like Reservation Dogs to make its mark. But the fact that this show is genuinely representative of Native American people and the culture, uh, not just having a Native American showrunner in Sterling Harjo, but almost everyone involved in the show's production behind and in front of the camera is also from a Native American background, 
it, it's not just paying lip service to the culture, you know. It's not having that one token character. The whole show is authentic um, to that. And, you know, uh, being a white guy from, white working class guy from England, I didn't know anything about um, Native American culture. And it's not that, you know, when you watch a film and you have the typical Indian representations, what are they? They're either the bad guy savages or they're like, you know, the shaman people who they go to for spirituality. It's there's literally two representations you get of Native American people on screen a lot of time, and this show shows you a much varied and variety of what the culture is. Just like every other culture, there's a big spread of representation across the board, and at least this show goes some way to showing a more balanced view of of their modern culture. And also, it's really really funny. It doesn't pull any punches, and it it's it's not like a start. You know, it's not like a rose tinted view of growing up there. It shows you the good and the bad of growing up as a modern-day Native American. So, David, are you interested? Uh, well, Neil, <laughs> as you know, I went to um, get the door and completely missed everything that you said there. Uh, so, I, but but I'm going to go ahead and say yes. I'm very interested. Um, I heard that there was a roast. I think at the end there, you know, I love a roast dinner. Roast? What? what? Um, no. Good God, no, man. When you were just talking about Native Americans and their representations in Hollywood, I immediately went to, uh, oh, what was her name? The Native American that collected Marlon Brando's Oscar and everyone booed her off the stage. Yeah, well, I mean, there you go, right? She, was a... <laughs> she wasn't Marlon Brando. Do you remember? Have you I, seen I, that? Do you I remember, remember that? Not, not, not that old, David. I, was, I wasn't actually born then, but, you know. Sasheen Littlefeather, I think her name was. Something like that. I say I think her name was. I, I, I literally just Googled it because it came to my mind. So that was her name. But the pronunciation might not have been yeah. correct. But you see what I mean about like... No, yeah, but I see the, what you the, mean. The yeah, standard representation mean, is really... It literally seems to be whenever we see a Native American representation on the screen in a film yeah. or a movie. Even in Fargo that you just mentioned, Fargo season two, he is the stone cold yeah. killer. He's awesome. He's actually, like the best character. I think that character's in this show, David. I think that actor's actually in this show. Oh, is it? Okay. He's yeah, he's brilliant in in Fargo. So um, that's the second season of Fargo. Yeah, isn't it? Se- season it is, yeah. two. Yeah, in the one set in the seventies. So right, I'm up. Do you yeah. have a number seven TV show, David? I do have a number seven TV show, and it's a TV show that came out January this year. So I was quite good at remembering it as a thing, <laughs> and but I only really thought of it because it comes out again this year. Like two seasons coming out in one year, one in January, and then the second, the fourth season comes out. In December, have you guessed what it is yeah. yet, Neil? Oh, you do? Yeah. You know it? Ozark. No. Oh, because you've got Ozark's the last series, half coming out in January and half coming out later in the year. That's not, it's Cobra Kai. Oh, yes, of course. Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Cobra Kai season three <sighs> came out in... Uh, the, the, the thing that I love most about Cobra Kai is that these actors, 30 years later, are still willing to come back... <laughs> <laughs> and and do like these, this sort of fan service TV show, and I it's just, I love it. I love how cheesy it is. I love how like you get properly built. It's like a boxing fight. How it builds up the tension and the rivalries uh, over the course of the whole season, and then you're like, bam, who's gonna win this like little karate fight that's gonna go on at the end of it? And you genuinely feel like the stakes are high when in reality there's there's no stakes at all. You know, it's a, it's a high school drama. It, like, well, well, was really it the, mistakes, the, the season two finale with that ridiculous fight scene that went on for about half the running time and in the yeah. high school? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he got oh, and Miguel gets kicked off the um, kicked off the, the steps yeah. and breaks his back or whatever happens. I, 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 oh, 
it's and so then, good. And then Miguel's like little little fight back with a little like you know. Oh, when, then when, just, it's it's brilliant. And then when uh, John is trying to get him back in shape, and he just keeps like making him fall on the floor. <laughs> but what John, Johnny as a character, the one, hands down. Uh, is yeah, hands down. Yeah, like why he wasn't just the main character of Karate Kid, or just like you know, late like how it took so long to people to be like. Johnny, Johnny, he's the money. Johnny's where the money's at. Fuck Daniel LaRusso. <laughs> it's all about Johnny. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, it's, and that's... St- it's brilliant. Like the, and then at the end of the season, you know, spoilers, where they, like, join forces and they're going to teach together. And then the trailer that came out for season four just now, where they're, like, merging the styles. Terry Silver coming back. Se- uh, season um, four yeah, is yeah, essentially... Uh, Cobra Kai Tag Team Edition, isn't it? It's um, it's uh, yeah, it's um, it Johnny and Daniel versus uh, Chris and um, what's John Silver's character? Terry, Terry, Terry Silver. Silver. I think, so. Yeah, so I mean that's um, um, and he still looks fucking badass. Terry in the third in the third uh, Cry Kid, I think it was the third one. He um, he was like you know this massive bloke, and he was about the same. He was the same age as Daniel Larusso. He was like dwarfed in comparison to him. You know, this massive dude. And uh, he's still got that, like, presence to him when he's standing next to Creeks. He still looks like a fucking badass. Well, what I like about it as well, um, man, is that it's fan service done right. Like, the tone shouldn't work. And it's, it, what, it's one thing that show's done that I've never seen any other show do is perfectly intercut scenes from the original movie it's based on into a TV show and have it work. No show's done that. So, yes. yeah. It's it, it's it, it is so if any if you if if you like if you're a fan of Karate Kid or you like or you watched it as a kid, uh, Cobra Kai is just as good. If you know what, I, I prefer Cobra Kai to the maybe not. Uh, actually, it's up. It's right up there with the original Karate well, Kid. David, I, sh- I, I was right actually going to say on that point. I wasn't that big a fan of the original Karate Kid. I think I only saw the first one. Didn't bother with the sequels, and I love the show. So I'd say even if you're not a fan of the originals. Uh, and and uh, okay. and all you all you know basically is that Daniel wins with the the kick at the end of the first film, and I I I, t- yeah. I forgot all about the stuff. And the show reminds you and does it well with the with the uh, the uh, flashbacks from the films that Johnny was actually being like basically abused by Chris anyway. I didn't know any of that. I just thought oh Johnny's the bad guy. Yeah, I, yeah, I didn't yeah. know any of that, I'd, or I've forgotten it all. So um, yes, yeah, because even even before Cobra Kai was a thing, there was that there was sort of a fan theory that. Johnny's actually the good guy and Daniel's the dick. Bef- this is before, like, like I said, before season one of Cobra Kai. And because uh, it's all about how Daniel's treating Johnny throughout. You know, Johnny's just... Uh, it's Turns always up, Daniel steals his girlfriend. That initiates the violence. Yeah, it was always Daniel that started the yeah. fight. Johnny just finished it <laughs> every time. Right, so Cobra Kai number seven on your list here, David. Well, my number seven is WandaVision. One season, no more need. One okay. more season. What's what's that? I still. F- no, I no, I really enjoyed One Division. Like the last, it's just the first two episodes, which is no, shit. They're not though, David. They're brilliant. They were. No, they were. You're wrong. So wrong. Still, no, right. Let right. me let me finish. Still, arguably the best of Disney's new MCU connected shows. One Division fleshed out two of the MCU's less well served characters in Paul Bettany's Vision and Elizabeth Olsen's Scarlet Witch. Now, knowing the fate of Vision from Avengers Endgame, many wondered how this show would work, and indeed, it started off as a 50s sitcom, moving through the decades as a 60s sitcom and a 70s sitcom, with just enough weirdness slowly sleeping in to keep viewers hooked. Like you, David. Um, but 
But no, then, episode... like, it was a bad sitcom as well. Like, it's not even... It was literally a 50 sitcom at the yeah. beginning. And it wasn't a very good one. And there was... There, and the, 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 what kept you going... With the, the little like, weird bits. Was maybe the fact that it was only 30 minutes <laughs> at the beginning. Because I think if that was 40-50, people probably wouldn't have... A lot of people would have lost it. But 50 on. sitcoms weren't that long, so... I'm sorry, but it is an exact perfect rep- replication of a 50 sitcom. If you watch those sitcoms it's based on, it's exactly like it. It nails the tone. Yeah, which is probably... But that's not it. what... That's no, not what I'm but saying. What I'm saying no is, one would... I don't think anyone would have watched that past... Right. Like, now, here's my here's if, my argument. If it, if it had continued... Here's my argument to you. My parents would have never watched WandaVision in a million years, but they saw the first episode and it hooked them. Then they watched the second one. Oh, yeah, that's that decade. And then because... The show had done a good enough job with the genre stuff that they remembered in those 50s, 60s. Yeah, but your parents aren't the audience. Oh, you can't that, say that. You can't that. say that Marvel stuff should appeal to the a mm, wider sort. I mean, Marvel it should appeal yeah, to everyone. So You're there you right, go. But is it the and audience? That, is it is it their target audience? Doesn't matter if target audience. You've got people who normally won't watch. Yeah. You've got people who won't not watch a show about that kind of stuff, watching it, and they watched it all the way through and they loved it. So fan theories and speculation were rampant after each episode aired. Um, it made me laugh. You had like, everyone was like, oh, it's Mephisto. Oh, it's the Fantastic Four. Oh, the X-Men are going to turn up. I mean, actually, they were kind of right on that last one because the show gave us Evan Peters' fourth ball-breaking appearance as Quicksilver coming across from the Fox X-Men films, uh, playing a version of Wanda's dead brother from the Age of Ultron, who was originally played by Aaron Taylor-Johnson. Now, also, the show introduced a brilliant character of Agatha, played by an equally amazing Catherine Hahn, who repeatedly stole the song each week. She uh, st- who repeatedly stole each scene she was in each week. And uh, so much so that she's now getting her own spin-off series called House of Harkness uh, next year sometime. And despite the usual MCU tropes of all the flying and the CGI overkill near the end of the show, ultimately the show was about loss, and as Wanda's fantasy world crumbles towards the end of the show, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And, you know, you wonder where are we going to find her when Olsen appears again as Scarlet Witch in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I think I think everyone forgets. I mean, we did a spoiler special on the finale of WandaVision right after it. That was our first spoiler special because it was it was so good. It was so emotional. It was made such an impact on a lot of people. And I think because it was earlier in the year and there's been more shows since then, I think people have forgot how honestly powerful that was. I mean, if the point of any of these MCU shows is to flesh out the side characters and give them more to do, and then when they do turn up in the movies... You you go oh wait wow I can't wait to see them I mean you you watch the reactions when Scarlet Witch turns up in Multiverse of Madness now people are gonna be like yeah you know whereas before they were like oh bothered so um <laughs> and, and the same with Betty's Vision you're like ah oh. I mean you know talk about lucking into a role there he was a voiceover and now he's um you know <laughs> he's had his own spin-off show but yeah for me Wonder Vision best best show um followed by Loki which I completely forgot about. Um, then Hawkeye, which potentially could go above Loki, depending on how it goes, because there are some big things that could happen in Hawkeye that have big consequences for the MCU going forward. But first of all, you need to watch um, uh, Black Widow. You need to watch Black Widow first, David, and then I can tell you about the stuff that's happened in um, Hawkeye. Or you could just watch Hawkeye as well. Okay, so my number six TV show is Feel Good Season 2. So on Netflix, uh, there's six episodes, and it's a... It's a second and final series. Now, this was a 30-minute comedy drama from May Martin with a show based vaguely on her earlier life as a stand-up comedian and recovering addict. 
In season one, she began dating previously straight girl George, played by Charlotte Ritchie, and the show followed their budding relationship until May's past kind of reasserts itself and she spectacularly falls off the wagon towards the end of season one. Season two sees her starting back in rehab in Canada with an awards-worthy performance by Lisa Kudrow playing the most passive-aggressive mother ever. Uh, George tries to make sense of her life without May in it. She rebounds with a complete numpty idiot woke guy, which is really hilarious, and throwing herself into empty causes. And you know that season two is going to be the journey of how they will get back together. Uh, and But it, it does also ask the question, actually, should they? Because are they actually going to be good together? At times, it's not an easy watch with all the mm. real heart-hitting stuff to do with addiction and abuse. Um and they deal, deal with it fairly head-on. But what makes the show work is it's probably one of the most convincing relationships that you see between May and George um, of the year. The sterling support from the rest of the cast. And yeah, as, as I think it's probably one of the best on-screen relationships I've seen this year. I, I honestly think Charlotte Ritchie is very underrated. Um, she was also plays a roommate in a sh- another show I mentioned called Dead Pixels. And again, she's just brilliant in that. She's played like the straight woman in that, ironically, because, you know, we have this show now. But um, she, that's the one where she lives in a house of gamers and is, is the one non-gamer. And like goes and has like a regular job and keeps telling them to, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's I know the one you Oh, that's all on Netflix as well now. What? Well, one thing I'll say about um, Feel Good, uh, it does the opposite of make you feel good, but it's quite depressing. But did you watch all of show. it? Anyway, uh, it's it's definitely TV not a show film to watch. Oh, good with then. your grandparents, or to, yeah, definitely not a TV show. Sorry, to watch with your grandparents or your parents. <laughs> Yeah, or well, children. Children shouldn't... Just you and your partner. Children shouldn't be watching that show in the first place, David. I, I, I'd be worried... Well, you know, if they're like 15 or 16, you know, like, don't watch it with them. So my number five is What We Do in the Shadows, season three. We have season four confirmed, and it's all available on the iPlayer right now, David. So why haven't you watched it? Yeah, the TV... What We Do series. in the Shadows. you just recently watched the film. Oh, uh, okay. You know, I just recently... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I have just recently watched the film for the first time. Uh, so I probably, you know what, I probably well, will watch. Because there's only like six or seven episodes a season, um, three seasons, and I think it, yeah, yeah, I I really enjoyed the film. I thought the film was so like it's quite it's funny, but in such a like, subtle way, I, I, you know, it's it's it was genuinely really good. Tackle like and Tackle White is hit and miss for me. I love I, I, as an actor, especially more more so than a director. He's very hit and miss for me. I'm like I love him in some things and hate him in others. Well, now, ironically, like, again, this, this makes the list. This is the second time Tacker's on the list. And it's funny what you said. Yeah, everyone loves the original. So doing a stateside adaptation of his Kiwi original just sounds like a terrible idea, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like it's... It sounds like it's, sm- it's smacks of, oh, yeah, let's just set it in America. And if you no, it's going to be terrible. But it's really good. And it's the casting. And the fact that Waititi and uh, Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords, they actually write all the episodes. Uh, I think even Taka may even directed a couple of them as well. Uh, I think it was like the, the first one, and the last one in the series. But where we are in season three of um, The Shadows is um, somehow our favourite group of bloodsuckers are now inadvertently taken over as a new vampiric council for the American Eastern Seaboard. Um, so your main characters in this one, David, so you've got Nandor the Relentless, who's like from the Ottoman Empire, and he's like the leader. But he's just kind of... He, Right. Is he like is he no, like no, the Nosferatu no, no, no. character? Don't try the, uh... no, there's no direct real uh... comparisons to the the film. That's what they're trying to make it up. So you've got four main characters okay. in the T V show, right? You've got Nandor, who's like I say, he's like this four, four more fierce warrior, but he's just bored by everything now. He's kind of listless and 
he's, he's just yeah, he's not excited by anything anymore. So he's kind of hitting that middle aged malaise of immortality. You've got a couple called Nadia and Laszlo, and they're played by Natasha Dimitriou and um, everyone's favourite David Matt Berry. And Matt Berry is just playing Matt Berry again. And um, that's how you make what we do in the shadows better. You add Matt Berry. Matt Berry can play yeah, Matt Berry his entire life. Matt Berry, all his stuff is just do, is just do with uh, drinking and sex again in, in the thing. But then you've got, they've got an energy vampire. He's like a less, you know what, Matt Berry is like a less popular <laughs> Ryan Reynolds. He just sort of and, plays but everyone loves it. Yes. Um, but then, uh, which was yeah. a new addition from what they have in the film, they have a roommate called Colin Robinson, who looks like he stepped in from the office, and he plays an energy vampire. And his thing is that he basically just talks to people and bores them to death. He, he doesn't bore them, but he gets he sucks their life essence out of them by just being really boring. And or, or, and um, oh, you got a young kid called Gamero who Nando keeps uh, Nando Nandor keeps promising to promote from a familiar to actually making him a vampire. So he's like their little slave boy who runs around during the day and like does all their tasks for them. Um, but I think with season three. Um, you definitely feel like COVID reduced the scope of the season a little bit. A lot of it is just the cast splitting off into pairs for most of the episodes. But, I mean, when you've got a, such a great cast and actors, it's still comedy gold. I mean, this season, we find Nando, like I said, you find him growing weary of eternal life. So he, like, goes to a wellness centre. He starts going to the gym, all this kind of stuff. You know, it's a vampire. It's brilliant. Uh, Nadia really takes, like, a duck to water running around. to, uh, to Nadia really takes to, like, running the vampire council and just... Realizing, oh shit, she's out of her depth. You get um, Kristen Schaal from um, Flight of the Concords coming into it as like the guide from the Vampire Council, who's trying to show them what they're supposed to be doing. You get some great pairings of Laszlo and uh, Colin Robinson for quite a few episodes, and that has a brilliant payoff towards the end of the season. And uh, Glamero is probably one of the best characters because he's gone from this sniveling little like slave boy who just wants to become a vampire. And there's quite a few revelations about his backstory you find out in uh, the end of season one and start of season two. So he actually gets upgraded from familiar to body va- official vampire bodyguard. And as the, season, as the season goes on, you can kind of see him being a bit more manipulative. Um, and indeed, his machinations are a delight to behold, man. He really starts, like, he kind of starts taking charge of them in the way without them realising he's doing it. Throughout the season, you've got highlights like an episode where they go to Vegas and they get trapped in the hotel because they lose their ancestral soil, which means they can't sleep and they begin to get very weak. This means Gomero has to go off on a European tour to get soil from their homelands. Um, you've got the Sire. Now, the Sire is a bit like the master from uh, the original one. So he's like the super old vampire who they had down in the basement. So in, yeah, in, in the TV show version, it, it's the Sire. You've got an episode where there's a siren called Sheila on an island. And um, the effort, the season ends with all the main characters in a very, very different place from where they start the season. And yeah, like I said, I can't wait for season four of it. Just get on it, David. If you like the show, uh, if you like the movie, you will love the show. Also, there's another little Matt Berry joke in it where um, one episode, he's starting to play the piano and he's playing the Toast of London theme on it. And then it, then, he, okay. then it, he, he continues playing and it goes into the theme song of the show. So that was a brilliant little touch. Oh, Speaking of, his new show, Toast of Tinseltown, comes to um, BBC Two January 4th. So if you're a fan of Matt Berry and his Toast of London, the new series, Toast in Tinseltown, BBC Two, January 4th. Yes, can't wait. So do you have a number four show, David? Or do you want to talk more about what we do in Shadow? I do have a number four show. It is. It is one of the, it's a show that's like, it's different to every other show and probably every other show that you're going to have in that it's like, not scripted or at least well it is scripted I'm just but saying, not to the point where 
It's anyway, it's Clarkson's Farm. I, I, it's Clarkson's I guess Farm. So. I guess yeah. so. I thought I, I, you uh, gave me a chance. I was going to say, if it's Love Island Day, we'd you're off the podcast. <laughs> Can you imagine? No. Uh, no, it's no Clark, Clarkson's Farm, Neil. Clarkson's Farm. It's uh, and RuPaul isn't on the list. Just just before you have a go. At I, I, why would I, David? Else. Why would I? Um, I thought you were going to say I'm a celebrity. You don't like? No, I'm not watching that this year. I told you last in the last podcast. I'm not watching that this year. It's um, I don't know. It's just not funny. Was it ever? Not into it. I think with I'm a celebrity, you gotta love the celebrities in it. Who and actually no one in qualifies as a celebrity? Careful. Or well, no, there's some of them in there <laughs> that I know of somewhere down the line. But anyway, yeah, Clarkson's Farm. I think it is the, like I mentioned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. We just talked about you this convinced in me to watch it. Podcast. Uh, uh, another plug again there. I did, I, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Job of it as well. Uh, <laughs> me, me and my, <laughs> I, well, so I don't much. know how much it was your thing, and me just being bored and it being locked down. I was like, okay, yeah, we'll watch it. So yeah, me and my old man uh, binged it all in about a week, I think. It's and it is genuinely hilarious. And what I love about it as well is what it's done for the UK agricultural industry. It's like you know, it's brought more awareness to some of the issues that everybody, like you know, farmers face. Because everyone sees farmers as these like you know, quite wealthy people. You know, work hard, but they're kind of only working maybe half a year. I'm, I'm sure farmers will take it's offense not, not to that. The thing. Case, you know, <laughs> I'm sure they work hard every day. Well. I doubt there's any of them listening. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. That's kind of what... I, the, I know what uh, you're going for. Basically, the know. show shows you the life of a modern-day farmer. Yeah. And Clarkson comes in. It's like this rich guy who doesn't really need and, it. And he proves throughout the course of the show how that, shit, it is a really hard job for little reward, but it is an essential industry. And, yeah, he highlights that. Definitely. Definitely. Very, and, it's, and it's funny. And, and it's yeah. the best thing he's done. Clarkson, better than Top Gear. I'm not a car guy, mate. So I ha- it's like when you said, what do you think about Clarkson? I, like, I don't really have an opinion on him, mate, because I'm not a car guy. Like, for me, a car is something that gets me from A to B. I yeah, don't need uh, to watch uh, shows uh, about how nice it is. Fair. I think even if you, like, hate Jeremy Clarkson for whatever reason, I still think that you'd enjoy Clarkson's Farm. It is it is quite yeah, Clarkson. So, so, I think that's kind of wrong, because if you hate him, you probably wouldn't watch a show. And then if you did hate... And then and then if you... Uh, I don't know. I think... I, no, you give it a try. You, give it a try. If you hate his personality, then... Just even more of it, you're probably not going to like it. And the supporting characters as well, like Caleb it's Gerald, and Gerald. Gerald's up. Gerald's the best. Well, you can't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bloke that you can't understand. Right. Um, well, and of course, we have season two coming out next year, David. Yep. That's just... Uh, I should. I don't know no, when. No, no one does yet, <laughs> so that's fine. So that's my fun. number four, which originally, David, was my number one, and then I've bumped it down. That, so it was number, number one four, at one point. So it was your number yeah, one, yeah. and it kept getting down to four. Um, I think, right, okay. and that's probably just due to the fact that it came out earlier in the year again, and it is going to pick up all the awards, I think, at the uh, uh, the Emmys later in the year, uh, next year, sorry, and that is Mayor of Easttown on Sky Atlantic. Familiar with it? Nope, not, a, n- not I'm right. familiar so with it, but it, I'm not seeing it. Gri- as, as I was going to say, so gritty police dramas are ten a penny these days. Indeed, they make up most of the BBC and ITV's weekly primetime programming. But hands down, the best one of the year was HBO's Mayor of Easttown, starring easily a career best, Kate Winslet, playing a youngish grandmother who has to investigate the murder of a young girl, while also still copping loads of shit because she hasn't found a missing girl from over a year ago. Uh, With Easttown being a relatively small town, everyone knows Mayor, and most of the other characters are related to each other. There are so many characters in this show, David. Literally, the first time I watched the first episode or two, I was like, wait, so who's this person? And wait, how are they related to them? Who's the kid? Who's the kid's parent? Who's the kid's mum? Who's that kid? You know, 
if if one word would sum up the show, it's bleak. Like most of the characters have tragic backstories and crippling loss, but the performances are so powerful and the central mystery so interesting that it doesn't become too hard going. And I think Winslet's like really just blunt, sarcastic performance brings intentional humour where there shouldn't really any be any. Also, where uh, Quicksilver himself shoots over from WandaVision, David, Evan Peters comes in playing a state detective called Colin Zabel because he's brought in to help her out. And obviously she doesn't like him immediately because, oh, I can do this myself. Guy Pierce turns up in town um, as a failed writer slash college professor. And there's so many red herrings throughout the, the show that you're constantly going, I wonder if it's him. Oh, I wonder if it's her. Oh, could it be them? Oh, they're the murderer. No, it can't be them. It's too obvious. And it's one of those shows and, and it's never predictable at all. Um, and is what's great about this performance by Winslet is she could be seen as she really could be seen as dislikable in places, and uh, I mean she even breaks the law herself in places for what she perceives as a greater good. And of course, David, the line of the show is after she hooks up with Pierce's character in the first episode, and she tells him she's got to go early to pick up her grandson the next morning. And you just see the look on his face, and before we can even mention it, she just looks straight at him and she goes, "Well, do I fuck like a grandma?" And that's the kind of level of comedy in it, man. It's 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 a very good okay. show. And again, I don't I know they really want a second series, but I don't see how they could do one. Um, like because the main story is all so tied into the characters' backgrounds and history. And once you've resolved all that, there isn't really anywhere for the story to go. Um, but yeah, that could they not do one like uh, yeah? Detective? But then it's called Mayor of East Town. Her character's mayor, and it's set in East Town, so. You 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 couldn't and East Town's a small place, so it's kind of handcuffed itself by the. Could you call it like Charlie? Well, ironically, there's um there's a Jeff Daniels or is it Jeff Bridges? I think it's Jeff Daniels show just come out called American Rust, and someone says, "Well, you might as well call this Jeff of West Town," and they said it's exactly the same show, just not <laughs> no go. nowhere near as good. So um yeah, it's it's definitely worth checking out, David. So your number three, do you have a TV show? It is. It's, it is. I do have a yes. Uh, okay, so this is. To no surprise to anybody, probably it's Midnight Mass. I had to throw my Flanagan in there. I think the I love you know how much I love my Flanagan, and uh, another plug that we talked about this previously. The restraining order is still in place, from what I believe. Yep, he's <laughs> he's <laughs> of uh, yeah no. Uh, anyway, how it blended religion mm-hmm. and atheism mm-hmm. in a small tight knit community with strong performances and the horror aspect on top of that, it all just perfectly... It was perfectly cultivated, Neil. It was very, very well done. I the, I mean, you didn't like any sort of monologue scenes. No. What, what are like you on about? Thing. What are you on about? You didn't like specific monologues. A specific, Don't you me? One specific monologue I didn't like, David. One. Which you couldn't have been more wrong about. No. It probably would have been my top TV show of the year. Yeah, that's what I figured. If not for pure entertainment value which is why it dropped down to what became my number one TV I, show I don't know what your number one show I'm, I'm, I'm honestly trying to work that one out now because I could have I, I was thought nailed on Midnight Mass would be your show of the year I feel like I should actually tell people what Midnight Mass is if they haven't seen it a little bit so um, this is Flanagan's first original story because again House on Haunting of Hill House was based on the uh, Shirley Jackson novel Doctor Sleep was based on the Stephen King novel so this is his you know, a wholly original series that Flanagan has created for himself. And it's a story about a charismatic new priest coming to a small island community called Crockett Island and a disgraced islander returning home from prison after bad stuff happening. And uh, you've got the magnetic Hamish Linklater as Father Paul, who begins overseeing these 
small miracles that start occurring in the island community. And uh, without getting into the big main spoilers of the why and the how of the show, which you can find out if you listen to our spoiler special, um, Midnight Mass is a show about religious fervor and faith. And what is faith? What is religion? And Flanagan, you can tell, was definitely raised Catholic. And the show almost feels like him working through all these thoughts and questions about Catholicism and organized religion. One of the most memorable characters from the show, actually, though, was probably the callous Bev Keen, played by Samantha Sloyan, a woman who, on the face of it, it's as devout as you can get. So in theory, in certain theories, she would be the best person. But she's an absolute bitch monster from hell who would give Nurse Ratchet a run in the unpleasant mistakes. You've got Zach Guilford <laughs> playing uh, Riley Thin. Now, he's a young man who's came home with a tra- tragic past. And uh, he is constantly haunted. And uh, I think his performance is a little bit overshadowed. But he's, he's a very I think he was picked because his particular style of acting is to very, very underplay it. And he, I think he's very, very good in the role uh, and doesn't get as much notice because, like I say, he, he isn't all... He just kind of accepts stuff and you can see it on his face. That, like, that's it. It's not like loud shouting and jumping around and all that kind of stuff. It's very a very internalised performance. Um, and he's really the first one who kind of starts feeling that there's something wrong with Father Paul and his miracles. Uh, one of the pros and the cons... One to, well, one of the pros and cons of the series is that it is very, very, very dialogue-driven. And each character easily gets their moment to shine. I mean, I think a particular highlight is a new Muslim sheriff of the town, played by the great Raoul Kohli, who gets a great soliloquy about 9-11 and what drove him to become a police officer and how he eventually was viewed by his superiors. So, um, yeah, I mean... It's very emotional. Yeah, yeah. Um I mean, I know we disagreed on one pivotal uh, scene in the show. There's, there's, a, there's a scene where characters, two characters are talking about death. And I just thought, okay, yeah, that was good. And then, again, it, I just thought it went on way too long. And uh, it was ended up being your favourite scene of the show. So uh, it's, it's, Yeah, yeah. You, I don't know. You couldn't have been more wrong about that, yeah, but, honestly. Yeah, but it's your opinion. So there is no right or wrong in, in the matter, David. And I enjoyed the show mm. thoroughly. Um, I think it, did. it is my opinion, but yeah, you were, and you were wrong. It, um, <laughs> yeah, obviously, that scene affected you more than it affected me. That's all. That's all it's saying. So you know, you you put more into you, you got more out of what he was putting forward than I did. So yeah. Um, now onto my number three, David, and we don't really have to talk about it because my number three was also Midnight Mass. There we go. Number three versus three. Three versus three. Well, when, when that obviously goes out on a Twitter poll, we we'll just we we'll just put a picture of Midnight Mass up and go, yeah, you know, because. Uh, so, <laughs> so that was. Do you have? So you've got, I'm assuming then your number two uh, TV show is going to be a TV show. It is my number two is going to be a TV show. Is that why you know what my number one's going to be? I, I fear, I'm fairly certain we know what our number ones are going to be, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. I'm I'm just thinking. All right, give me a few hints because I haven't got a clue here. No, try and guess. Try That's and guess, what I mean. Scott. Give me some hints. I haven't got a clue. You need to give me a hint. One hint. Um... Came out roughly. Let me let, actually let me find out when it came out, and that'll be a hint. Right. Hang on. Let me Google it. Ah, thank you, listeners. This is this is a googling portion of the po- <laughs> of the podcast where, um, if you are a fan of hearing David tap on his keyboard, then uh, this is this is moments right. This moments uh, just for you here. Yeah, hang on. Yeah, well, I've forgotten when it was. Released. You forgot the name of your favorite show of the year. It was in March. It was released in March. March. There you go. There's right. Your, tell me what. Right. Guess. Okay. Tell me what network it was on. Uh, Amazon. Amazon. Well, it's not Clarkson's yeah, farm. Prime. The boys isn't wasn't out this year. Oh. Uh, I I haven't got a clue, mate. Uh, I'm I'm blank. Okay, if I was to say Omni Man, Invincible, Invincible, yes, oh, yes, yeah, Invincible, great choice. Um, so you... genuinely, uh, was my most because because like I said, it went off enjoyment. 
I enjoyed Invincible so much. It, uh, like to sent me back to my childhood years of watching X Men, like Dragon Ball Z, or no, no what, what watching X Men? Yeah, there was a cartoon X Men. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh wait, yeah, sorry, yeah, that's yeah, my childhood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, yeah, no, I was more Dragon like watching Dragon Ball Z, um, and just being like, just animation in general, anime for Dragon Ball Z, uh, and I the sheer brutality. That's on show in Invincible. I will, I will just say the train sequence in the last episode. Holy shit, man. You cannot do that live action. It's, yeah, 100%. So it is on Prime Video. It is the story of uh, Mark Grayson, who is the son of uh, Nolan Grayson, who also known as Omni-Man. Omni-Man is essentially... Superman. He's not essentially Superman. Is he essentially Superman? Yeah. Kind of. He, he, yeah. So he is basically the most powerful superhero in this world of superheroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark, as his son, going through puberty, develops his own superhero, um, su- like superhero powers. And it's basically a sort of coming of age storyline of him coming into his own, fighting, uh, rel- like, you know, uh, Alien invaders that are coming to destroy Earth. Voiced by and the great Omni Man. Voiced by the great Stephen Yoon. Yep, yeah, an Omni Man voiced by J.K. Simmons. The the King. And amazingly voiced by J.K. Simmons. Like I that man. Um the You made it weird, <laughs> Sorry, David. Weird. You made it, you made <laughs> yeah. it weird. That's enough of a restraining uh, but, order. Uh, but Omni Man as a character is why it's so good. His... I don't think it's just Omni Man. I think the whole show is well, Omni Man is the one man. He is fucking badass. He is the ultimate villain. He's so well written. Spoilers: He's the villain. <laughs> uh, and some of the brutality that he goes through, and it's not, and it's just daily. It's it makes it the show so grounded because some of the decisions that Omni Man does is so. Like he's like one life is irrelevant to him. Saving one life is nothing because it's one life. What is it? To, what is saving one man? To, but he's he's big picture. He saves millions and he kills millions. He's not one life is one life is worthless to him. It's like the life of an ant to us. That's how we. That's how he sees humanity. The the show was. I can't wait. Oh, yeah. For a second season. Well, and I, and I think based on the comic book it's based on, um, the comic book series, there is an absolute ton of material coming. Um, I, I Again, I just you, you forget how good the voice cast are on this. You've got Sandra O oh playing Debbie Grayson, Mark's, Mark's regular mother. So that's the kind of thing, isn't it, you know? Because uh, um, Nolan... Across uh, the board, the voice acting was... Uh, f- well, by Mark, exception. he's from the planet... He's from, is it? He's born on Viltrum. So... Viltrum, yeah. Vilt- he's a Viltrumite. Well, no, uh, yeah. He's a Vilt- He's half Viltrumite. He was born on Earth. No, Mark, Mark is. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I said Nolan is from Viltrum. So he's yeah, half Nolan, and half. Nolan's full Viltrum, yeah. But yeah, I mean, then you kind of got... It, it does remind you of the boys in some ways, doesn't it? In that, in the extreme violence and the... the yes, yeah, The yeah, skewering yeah. of the superhero thing and the teams. Like, I preferred this more to the boys, if I'm honest. Well, I don't think... I think they can go further in animation than they could with the boys. Um, I, I still yeah. I do love the boys, I still man. But I mean, yeah, like you say, you've got kind of got their DC jabs in it. You have got the Guardians of the Globe, um, and like you say, you know, Atom Eve by Gillian Jacobs. You got Walt Goggins essentially playing Nick Fury, really. Cecil Stedman. Um, you got Zach Quinto in it. You know, you got Siler from Heroes. That's the irony having he um, someone in that. Um, Mark Hamill does a guest voice in it, mate. Did you know that? 
Yes, I did. And of course, yeah. she got. He's, he's not just. A, he's like in a few episodes. It's not just. Again. Well, he's Art Rosenbaum, isn't he? He's a, he's, a, he's the guy who makes the suits for him. But um, Damien Darkblood plays by Clancy Brown. Demonic Detective escapes hell. I mean, it's just. Oh, and of course, Seth Rogen playing Alan the Alien. I mean, that's awesome. That um, yeah, I I I really can't wait. Yeah, do you know what? I completely forgot about this. Oh, that was one other little um. Did you know the original Guardians of the Globe roster, David? Who uh, um, and again, spoilers. Who just get wiped out horrifically in the first uh, episode? Do you know about the voice acting Joe? Uh, not Joe. The voice acting link between them all. Between them all. Yeah. They all. No, go on. Right. So. They all appeared, they're all actors who were in The Walking Dead. Okay. So, Ross Marquand, Lauren Cohen, Sonequa Martin-Green, Chad Coleman, Michael Kuditz, Lenny James. So, the original Guardians, you all get wiped out. And, of course, reason being, Invincible is written by Robert Kirkman, who wrote Walking Dead. Do you know what? I'm glad he stopped doing Walking Dead and started working on this, because this is infinitely fucking better. <laughs> I just yes. hope he doesn't drag this well. I think, if I remember rightly, hearing from people who've read the comics, this is finished in the comics run, so they've got a definitive endpoint to get to. Which, again, yeah, yeah, big, big, big fan of Invincible. All right, David. Well, um, I'm moving on to my number two show, and again, I was this was vying for the number one spot, and I was a, uh, I was really, I was really sort of torn between this, and it is Netflix's Cowboy Bebop. Yep, we talked about it a lot on the last episode. Are the you- show. The show that got cancelled. Shut your face, David. Go to hell. <laughs> Utter bastards. I mean, yeah, right. If it if you wanted to make another comparison to one of the best sci-fi shows that was cancelled, Firefly, then Cowboy Bebop is right there with it now. Because this has also been cancelled by those utter shithawks and their hawks. By those utter shitheads at Netflix after one season. You, I think you've got to be particular. Like, there's got to be something that really went wrong with that if for it to get cancelled after one season. Netflix does everything. I reckon it was a cost. I reckon um, the the production filming out in New Zealand for a couple of years. I reckon probably to do with COVID, isn't it? Um, a lot of shows have been cancelled because of COVID, because of like actors' contracts, and I think uh, that's what's happened. Is where a lot of shows they've had to pay the actors more to just sit around and wait for a year, and the cost of doing that. Oh, and the production crews as well, obviously. And there's been certain shows where they, if they're not instant hits, they've gone, that nah, fuck it, it's done. And uh, I know I'd love someone to rescue Cowboy Bebop, man. That is, and as I said in the last episode, that is one of the most fun times I've had watching the show in ages. And the weakest parts of the early episodes, which was is uh, the main villain, Vicious, and um, Spike's ex-girlfriend, um, I forget her name, Julia, that you find out why they're like that, and you actually get some personality from them later on in the, uh, the show and had a great setup for a second series so yeah that was actually that a was a great setup for a second series <laughs> fuck you man lol terrible <laughs> sorry I'm not, I shouldn't be laughing yeah, at some it's, it's a like... brilliant show man I mean how, where are you because ha- when a show gets cancelled you know people lose their jobs it was, they brought so much effort on the first season all that work and time yeah it's you know what it's not funny it looked amazing yeah. um it's not just even that. It's just uh, it's, it's clearly got to be uh, like everything in the fucking world. It's come down to money, right? Probably didn't the cost of making it versus the critical reaction. I mean, it didn't get bad reviews. It was mixed. It was mixed to average with the reviews it got, and that was because only every fucking reviewer kept comparing it to the original anime, of which there was only twenty six episodes anyway. So like, and you know, they took the bits that people liked, and then they like any adaptation of an anime or a comic book material these days. You can't just do it as it was. You have to like update it. I mean. We talk about the boys and we talk about Preacher. Um, Preacher adapted that it was so hard to adapt. Their whole season one was essentially uh, cluing you in on the world building on how it all worked so that by the time you got to the end of season one, 
you could actually handle what would happen in the first issue of the comic. And it kind of wrapped around. So it was almost like a prequel season. Um, with the boys, they updated it because a lot of the stuff that wouldn't have worked in the modern day, they updated with the Me Too movement. And, um, the you know, it, it, the boys hit at the perfect time in relation to the saturation superhero stories. So, and, you know, just absolutely fucking digging it. And again, digging into them and exactly what Invincible did as well. So they were the shows that were in a... Uh, the right place at the right time. Unfortunately for Cowboy Bebop, I think the fact that there wasn't many more source material maybe as well, like I said, 26 episodes, but uh, I'm going to have to try and get it from somewhere, acquire it from somewhere, because it'll just disappear off Netflix and no one will ever fucking be able to see it again. And that's a shame, man, because it was a really good show. And uh, that's actually why I locked it down from number one. That would have been, it was going to be my number one show, David. Then I found out I was cancelled. I was like, well, I can't have a number one show. Well, Bebop was going to be number one. Yeah. Number one TV show. Because pure enjoyment. I just, I, I, okay. I, 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 I happily, I am, and I'm going to watch it again and again and again. But my number one show, David. What's your number one going to be there? What, have you, What's it going to be? So. Let me think. Give me a guess. Okay. Give me a guess. Okay. It's on Apple. Yes. Well, that's it. You... Is it, okay. Is it uh, the one with the baby where. Oh, Servant. Servant, yeah, uh, is that it? No, I compl- that should have made my long list, actually. That's back in a couple of weeks as well um, for its next series. Servant. You've said, like, oh, shit, that should have made my list, like, four times. <laughs> yeah, well, I watch a lot of stuff, man. Um, no, uh, no, it wasn't that. All right, hang on. It's on Apple. It's on Apple. It's on Apple. You're just... Wait, let me keep... Oh, fa- okay, no, no, I know, I know, I know. Yes, What's David. Found- foundation. It's, it is indeed Foundation. Yeah, I mean, I think it was our chat with uh, Charlie on the last episode where like he said it was his favourite show of the year. And I was just, I, the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, do you know what? It is fucking really good. And I think what made me appreciate it more was uh, since I've watched the whole first series, I've listened to the podcast that um, the creator of the show, David S. Goy, has done, and where they take you through, through every episode. Dude, and there's so much stuff I missed the first time round that I just didn't get. And listening to them explain, I was like, oh, that's why that happens. I mean, it's it's probably not a good mark that's saying, oh, you should have to listen to an accompanying podcast about a show to fully understand it all. But it's one of these things, a bit like The Expanse, where it's like, we're not going to hold your hand and walk you through it. If, you can't, if you're not paying attention, then fuck you. You're not going to keep up with what's going on. And this show yeah. jumps between different timelines. So, well, sorry, not timelines. Time periods so often. Um, so, you, you know, you'll have a couple of episodes with your main characters. You're like, oh, yeah, wait, where are they gone? Oh, we're 400 in the futures. Everyone is dead. Okay, um, are we going to go back to them? Oh, not 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 for a few episodes again. We're not. Um, but I mean, visually, it's stunning, man. This is as I, as I said on the last episode. Um, this is the June of TV shows, David. It is that good. It is just amazing. Right. So yeah, um, as we talked about Foundation on the last one, I'm not really going to go much more into it here, except for this should be the number one show you watch, David, out of all shows, because it's my number one show right. of the year. No. I know, no, Charlie. I, 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 Charlie's recommendation um, holds more weight than mine. Really? Is it? So, <laughs> is it? Is this because um, I don't? Just because I didn't like that long dialogue scene in Midnight Mass. Yeah. That one specific one, that's not it. all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's the best one. So, everyone, we're going to take a short break. We're not actually going to take a break, David. I'm just going to say. This. So, if you want to go and <laughs> if you want to hit pause on the podcast, go refresh yourself, go get a drink, and then after this, quick bit of music we are gonna go uh, straight into our top 10 films of the year and however many david's got left and we're back so um right Phil for me he just we just sat here for like the whole time that song was going yeah and he, it was kind of awkward in silence well um 
I'm just saying um, all we want for Christmas, David, is uh, 1,500 followers on Twitter and 1,000 downloads of our podcast. Yeah, that'd be our, nice. our friends over at Film Floggers... I prefer the podcast downloads. Yeah. Personally. Well... If you're going to give us one, give, give us that one. Well, our friends over at Film Floggers have volunteered the services of their, their co-host Fiona to sing a Christmas song for us, but... Um, I think by the time we get around to recording it, it'll be next Christmas already, to be fair, because uh, our timings are all over the shop at the minute. So, we're now on to top 10 films of the year, David. Yes. It's always funny doing a, a top 10 films of the year list when there's a few massive films still to come out. And a few films... When we put these kind of lists together, as we said at the start of the show, we're doing it for pure enjoyment and entertainment. So, we don't always agree with what all the top critical film um, reviewers say. And obviously, connected to that as well, is the fact that there's quite a few films that we haven't seen ourselves as well. Um, so I, I, I kind of, before I get to my long list of films that just missed my uh, top 10 list, David, I've got my list of mm-hmm. films I haven't seen and films that are just coming out that we haven't seen that are kind of going to be in a lot of people's thoughts going. Would make your list or probably. Potentially can make our list if we'd seen them. Yes, okay. So coming up, yeah. we've got Don't Look Up on Netflix, which is the 24th of December. That's the new DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, Meryl Streep film. You heard about this one? Is that the uh, the comedy? The comic with the asteroid. That's, that's hit the one. The, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, from what I've heard, it's like a modern doctor. It's a modern day Doctor Strange love, where um, you know they're the scientists trying to convince the government that the world's going to end. Yes. And the government's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll talk about. It. We're going to sit tight and assess. So uh, yeah, I'm, that's out. Christmas Eve, so chewy Christmas film from Netflix there. One film that I haven't really got much interest in seeing, I don't know about you, but they reckon uh, Best Actress could go to, is um, Spencer, the... Um, the okay, yes. Kristen yeah, Stewart yeah. film. Pr- uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. About Diana Spencer and the time at Balmoral, is it? Well, it's fictionalised, it's isn't it? It's like, it's like a week or a couple of days... Like portrait of her, but I mean, yeah, I did see the trailer, and you know, it's the end of the breakdown in relationship with Charles. So I think that's the, it's like it's the it's the tipping. <laughs> Again, like a lot of biopic films, if, unless I'm really that interested in the person it's about, I'm probably not going to watch it. Uh, but you know, from what I've seen in the trailer, she does seem to. You're not na- interested in Diana? No. Uh, you fiend. God. I'm not that interested. No, in no, no I, I didn't think so. Um, <laughs> another film, although, although there's a scene in the Crown. Oh. Where it is uh, Diana and Charles, and the argument, oh, it's the best scene in The Crown. Anyway, go on. Yeah, I don't watch The Crown either. Not not fast. Um, next up... You're on... not royal, are you, Neil? Not just... Uh, they're good for tourism, I suppose. Um, okay, so next up, on Apple TV+, Plus, you've got Coda, starring... Um, is it Amelia Jones from... Uh, what show? What's the big show? Lock and Key. So this is a film about... Um, this is supposed to get lots of awards, and I still haven't got around to watching it yet. And it's a film about she's the only girl with hearing in a family of deaf people, and of course right. she wants to be a singer. And her family's like, "Great, that's you want to be a singer? Literally the one career where like we can't actually hear you doing, you know." So um, it's it's, it's like family drama, but apparently the performances in the film are really top notch. You got Marley Matlin in it playing her mother, who again is one of probably one of the most famous uh, deaf actresses out there. Um, I think it was what was the uh, early film she starred in, Children of Lesser God. Uh, the French film, and then she was brilliant in The West Wing, and um, I think probably one of the forerunners of getting sign language on TV. You know, she was she was she's been that good in everything she's done throughout her career. Um, and like I say, Amelia Jones is uh, coming up quite well now, from what I've heard. 
So uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about. A film you should you should love, David, because it's about a musical and about a guy writing a musical. It's Limwell Man Miranda's directorial debut, Tick Tick Boom, with Spider Man. Okay, you heard? No, I'm not saying that. Another one. Yeah, yeah, sorry, gone. No. Have you not heard that? Oh, wait, no, it's not. It's not out. Is it out? Yeah, it's on Netflix. It's been on Netflix for a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. it's about um, it's about the guy who wrote Rent and how he okay. when he was a struggling um, right. Well, I'm not a big fan of Rent to be honest, Steve. Oh, God. <laughs> but you're a big Doesn't fan of Hamilton, right? And this is Linwell Man Miranda's. Um... Yeah, I like Hamilton, but I don't like everything Linwell Miranda's done. Well, they're going to kick you out of the Hamilton fan club, man. The second, like, the, you oh, know, bah, bah, bah. he's in Mary Poppins and he's pretty pants in that. <laughs> I, I'm not, you know, I'm not just because um, just because Linwell Miranda did Hamilton and it's fucking amazing doesn't make everything he's done going to be gold dust. Well, like Hamilton too, the Hamiltoning. Um, yeah, anyway, like the, the Revenge of Burr. No, I don't know. No, I guess Burr gets his revenge. I don't know. Whatever. The Revenge of Hamilton. The re- Just call it Burr. That's the next one. It's going to be Burr. With three R's and a Z to make it more street. Um, yeah, so next up, um, we've got um, one of the Coen Brothers' new films, and it's The Tragedy of Macbeth. And essentially, it's just Macbeth. Yes. But it's Denzel Washington playing Macbeth, and it's... Uh, this does look really good. And it's Toilet Shitting Lady. Oh, what's her name? Um, uh Bucket shitting lady. I've not seen it. Yes, you have. Bucket shitting lady in um no man. I know, I know. Francis McDormand. In, um, That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, of course you haven't seen it. It's yeah. not out yet. That's what I'm saying. It's not out yet. But it's coming out over Christmas. So it's a film that, again, everyone's talking about the awards for. Um, though I'm wondering how well it's going to do, bearing in mind it's apparently, from what I heard, it's just a straightforward adaptation of Macbeth again. You know, I'm, I uh, I guess how, how how really you into Macbeth and your, your literature is going to, or how much of a Coen Brothers fan you are is really going to, sort of get your interest in this one. I mean, I'll watch it, but it's not going to be high on my list to watch. Something that I'm dying to see, David, that's still not been released here, and it's out in America, which is annoying as piss, and is getting lots of awards talk, is the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson, which is... Which is... Li- Licorice Pizza. Oh, I have no interest in this. What? What's it about? I don't know. I have no interest in it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you, you're on the edge of getting your critics... Uh... No, I, I haven't even... To be honest, I haven't even heard of it. Okay, right. Tell me about it. So, it's a coming-of-age film uh, about... And it's... Um, do you remember Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of the greatest actors of his generation before, unfortunately? Yes, yeah, yeah, of so, it's his son making his uh, debut. Um, and he plays this like young guy who starts up a relationship with a... This is me trying to spell the word licorice at the moment. Yeah. Um, and it's about him starting up a relationship with a girl who's a few years older than him, played by one of the girls from Haim, who's also making an um, acting debut. So you've got two... Li- oh, I, I have seen this. Well, you haven't seen it. It's not out. No, 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 I've not seen it, but I have... <laughs> you've heard I, of it. Uh, no, yeah, 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 I've seen it. A bit. No, it does look quite good, actually. Oh, yeah. I'm it's a... on... You know where I've seen it? I've seen it on all these... Uh, on It's a bunch of YouTube ads at the moment. That's where it keeps popping up. Yeah, so that and, um, that is one of the ones that I really... And it's making the rounds on Twitter, and I have seen it, and it does look really good. Yeah, I'll, Sorry, I'll... I just completely blanked on you, what it was. You did, and I believe the technical term is a reverse ferret. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure where it came from, but I want to... Uh, on the Pilot TV podcast, whenever someone changes their mind about something almost instantly, it's called a reverse ferret. So yes. we're going to steal that. And, you know, we gave credit okay. to them anyway. Um, next up, you've got Belfast, uh, Kenneth Branagh's new film, Black and White One, about growing up in Belfast, um, which um, I think is like limited release in certain cinemas at the minute. But that's getting a lot of awards talk. Um, again, it's one of those films, I suppose, you know, 
it is what it is. Uh, another one I'm really tempted to so at the minute, out of all those so far, Don't Look Up I'm really looking forward to, Licorice Pizza I really want to see, and next up, Guillermo del Toro's new film, Nightmare Alley, which looks amazing. Um, yes. It... Kate Blanchett, Bradley Cooper, and who else was in it? Loads of actors. Um, it looks very good. And what I love is... William Dafoe. William Dafoe. That's it. It comes out the same day as Spider-Man in America. So it's William Dafoe Day, technically, in, in the States now. But, um, yeah, I think he plays like a con man, doesn't he, um, in it, Cooper? And it's like all to do with, like, uh, turn-of-the-century stuff, I think. I mean, what, what's the good thing is I've watched the trailer and I'm still not sure what the film's about. Uh, yeah. And it just looks amazing and, you know, it, production design looks amazing. And it's Guillermo del Toro. The guy doesn't make bad films. So, yeah. Um, hopefully I'll be there with about eight other people watching it in the cinema when that comes out. Because, again, not a lot of people go to see his stuff where we're from. Of course, Thursday we're going to see Spider Man, No Way Home, David. Spider Man, Spider Man, does whatever. Yep. Yep. Brilliant. Thanks for that. I sorry. I thought I'd stop before we lost everyone. I mean, that's appreciated. However, if you're still with us over an hour and whatever we're in, cheers. Well, but you're refreshed. You've had a break. You've gone. You've you know you've relieved yourself if you needed to. You've uh, washed, splashed your face a little bit. You've got yourself a drink and you're ready for the second half of the pod, which we're now into. Um, West Side Story, David. I mean, not my kind of thing, but everyone's... I'm not I'm not just a, a big musical fan, but everyone's saying it's amazing and it's one of Spielberg's best films. Um, That's That there is is the biggest... Probably the biggest compliment. What, saying... That it's one of Spielberg's best films. So if people are saying that... Well, the funny thing is, though, Spielberg... Think, think of the list of films yeah, he's done. exactly. I think it's just a bit of too much over time. I mean, Spielberg doesn't make bad films, does he? Let's be honest. You know, even like his lesser films, was it like, was it Bridge of Spies? It's still amazing. Mm. It's just, you know, at the end of his career, um, they're not the ones you're going to remember. It's going to be all like the classics. But West Side Story, and everyone's like, why hasn't Spielberg made musicals before? It's that good. Well, he should only make, you know, there's so much over-the-top euphoria about how good it is. Um, however, though, there is a bit of a mini, minute controversy about the stereotypical depictions of the Cuban uh, actors in it, or the Cuban things. So, uh, but again, he's just following directly on from the original source material, right? So, uh, um, one of the uh, the more um, there's a couple. Is it is it stereotypical? I, I've or historically accurate. Well, I don't know because I haven't. I, haven't... I, th- I do feel like sometimes there's a little grey overlay between the two. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not too sure on that. Now, we've got a few more India fi- Well, one of the films I haven't seen, I don't think it's going to make a lot of people's best list, but I'm just pissed off because we never got it in the cinema down here and I can't actually see it yet, is uh, Wes Anderson's new one, The French Dispatch, which, again, I think you know, yeah, it, might, okay. it might get nominated for some uh, production design awards because it generally, every one of his films always does because they're always amazing and works of art by themselves. In fact, there was a French Dispatch um, uh, exhibition on up in London uh, recently that I would love to have gone to. A couple of smaller films. Uh, First Cow, which is about a guy who steals uh, a couple of brothers who steal a cow, a prize cow. That got loads of good reviews earlier in the year and it's kind of like dropped off. Uh, Pig, Nicolas Cage's film about, well, Nicolas Cage as a truffle farmer whose prized pig is stolen. Uh, I mean, double bill with that and First Cow sounds like it could be a bit too much, actually. And making a late play for potentially some awards later, uh, for next year, the films that we haven't seen this year. Um, from France, we have Titan. Uh, which is a horror film written and directed by Julia Durnacal. And I apologise for the um, the bad um, pronunciation of her name. Um, this sounds like something David Lynch would do, man. It's literally something to do with a woman and cars and sex and 
It's like it's like it's it's something to do with a woman. It's been, I mean, <laughs> it's, I'm looking. I'm looking. Cars make an appearance. Yeah, I don't really know anything about it except for everyone said it's. Um, uh, it, she actually won the director. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year, um, which is a bit bizarre. Uh, well, not bizarre. It's just well, I mean, I suppose a French film getting awarded by a French film festival. But uh, I know the BBC gave it four out of five stars and called it the most shocking film of 2021. Um, Variety said it was a cross between Cronenberg's Crash and the Uterine Horrors of... The most shocking film of of 2021. Yeah, BBC. I wonder how many times the same critic... Has used that. ...will say something like that. Will say the same line. Like, the most... (laughs) It's the most something of the year. The must-see of the year. Like, you know, those sort of lines that just crop up all the time. I mean, it sounds very bizarre and interesting, but I think it's going to be one of those films where, like, you you know you're going to be in for some weird shit. Uh, Mm. But, hey, you know, the more people that make films that are absolutely bizarre and weird and get recognised, it means the more creativity we're going to get out there, which is good, instead of just the same shit churn out all the time. And, of course, one one other film that potentially might make make, make our list, but is is out a couple of days after Spider-Man, The Matrix Resurrections. Which, hey, up in the air on this one, man. The first one's a classic. I saw it again in the cinema a couple of weeks ago myself. The original holds up brilliantly. It doesn't disappoint. It's amazing. Still don't think the second and third ones are very good. I, I just don't think they had enough story and just stretched out with cool action scenes and a great performance by Agent Smith. Um, that is my worry for the new Matrix film is that we're going to get the, the Matrix Awakens where they rehash most of the first film for the first half hour, 40 minutes, then set up a new direction to take it off for because they're clearly looking at the sequels. Um, the only interesting thing is where the first one was written and directed by both the Wachowskis, this new one has been written by Lana and um, the guy who wrote Cloud Atlas. So I think there could be some more weird shit in this one as well, man. Yeah, it's a shame that they they both dropped off. Like one of them, uh, you know, it's like we're only getting half the double act. Well, I'm not sure what um, um, the other Wachowski uh, is doing these days. Um I think uh, Lana's one who's kind of kept going in filmmaking as much. And like you said, I just, um, I, 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 it's funny. It almost looks like Shana Reeves has just like rocked up in his John Wick gear and was like, look, I'm not shaving. I'm not changing expression <laughs> on my face. I'm in the middle of doing John Wick 4. This is the only way I can fit this in. Can't be asked. Just give me some guns and let me shoot some stuff. And as long as they do it well, and as long as they bring Rage Against the Fucking Machine music back for it and correct the, do you know what? If they have that song that I've been praying out for, for the end of, that they always should have had at the end of Resurrections, Freedom, at the end of this one, then that will that will like be the biggest... I'll be like a, a guy in the front crowd at a wrestling show when like their favourite wrestler comes out, and he's going, yeah! And they just pop. <laughs> That'll be me in the cinema if we get Freedom at the end of uh, the new Matrix. The pop. The pop. The crowd pop. Right, so that's a list of stuff that's coming out that we haven't seen, and um, we probably would make our list if we'd seen them. Uh now, on to my top 10 films, but not quite yet, David, because I still have my long list. But don't worry, it's not that long. It's quite short. Oh, bloody no, hell. <laughs> that's what... Right, so... Let's just hit the names. Just hit the names. No, no, I've got, I've got like, one sentence after each of them. So, I care a lot. Rosamund Pike channeling her Gone Girl vicious bitch character. Not side after a change. Um, massively unscrupulous arsehole of a character who come up against even more worse people. I care a lot. Really good film. Godzilla vs. Kong did exactly what it said on the tin with Monster Smash action and some decent, if inoffensive, human actors for a change. Special shout out to young actress Kaylee Hottle as Gia, who used sign language to form a special bomb with Kong. She was the best uh, human character in the film. A Quiet Place 2 followed right on from the end of Quiet Place 1, but with some flashbacks to the original. 
swapping Killian Murphy for John Krasinski. Great performances by the kids again. My only issue was the scope of the story still seemed fairly small, with the plot basically being we need to get from A to B again. Black Bear, a really weird and great indie film of two halves that is solely designed to show you how amazing Aubrey Plaza can be. Malignant, a slow okay. and befuddling film for the first hour and a bit and then pure chaos and then one of the best police station slaughters I've seen since The Terminator. You were not a fan of this, David. Malignant, Malignant yeah. was shit. I've no, I was, it, it wasn't shit. I was just really disappointed by it. Really disappointed by James Wan in that one. I mean, anyway. I, I feel like it's shit on purpose. So though, when you have the reveal, and then I was like, okay, I'm yeah. with it. But that, no, that's not the reason why I just didn't. I, I it was just a really bad cop film. <laughs> okay, well, just really bad. Yeah, I'm, that's it. That was the film. That would make your worst off list, then, which we're not going to do. But yeah, it would. Yeah, um, it would. It probably would make my worst of the year. Um, I, another great one that um, just missed out was uh, Werewolves Within, a great low budget werewolves comedy horror with great turns from Veep's Sam Richardson and soon to be no longer just referred to as the AT&T girl, Miliana Van Trubb as a charismatic couple hiding out from werewolves and a murderer in a snowbound small town. So think Knives Out, but we've added werewolves, David. Okay. <laughs> it's very good and okay. it's very funny and low low budgety. Um, Cop Shot was a surprise. Um, action director Joe Carnahan, you know, did the A-Team, NARC, always makes great mid to low budget action films and this was really sold on the fact that it was a Gerard Butler and Frank Grillo film but actually it was a young cop Alexis Lauder stealing the film as she gets caught up between a team of assassins trying to kill a prisoner in a jail cell and the film is absolutely stolen by Toby Huss as a psychotic killer Tony Lamb um if you haven't seen Cop Shot mate it's really funny it's really good and like I say when you go to watch it you're like oh it's another Gerard Butler Frank Grillo B action movie and it's not, I mean, it is, they're in it, but it's probably more about the other characters. And um, yeah, it was, it was just a surprise. It was entertaining and a surprise. Briefly talk about Fear Street. I think 1978 was the best one um, for me. I, I mean, it, well, yeah, it was, all yeah. the films were good in the trilogy, but 78 was probably a better camp slasher film than most of the original camp slasher films. Had surprising heart. You actually cared about the characters in it had a horrific ending, and also managed to do a great bit of setup for the third film. So, yeah, I think that Fear Street, Fear Street 78, probably one of the best horror films of the year. Also, Censor, Prano Bailey Bond's horror film about a young film censor in the video narcissist era in the 1980s, expertly played by the underrated Naima Algar, who finds a link between some video narcissists and her sister's disappearance. I'll say no more, but this was definitely entering St. Maud territory, David. I kind of got the vibe like this is this year's No, Saint I remember Maud. you telling me about this at the time. And you know what? I googled um, and it's got the yeah. same editor as St. Maud. So how about that? Yeah. Um, Shang-Chi, you know, perfectly enjoyable origin film. Didn't reinvent the wheel. Didn't really make too much, but um, yeah, it was enjoyable enough. Um, solid, solid mid-tier MCU. Then The Eternals, David. Now, an MCU origin film... I've not seen this yet. So, so no, spo- uh... no spoilers. Um, it was slower, a bit more talky, which we expected. It did look amazing, which we did expect. Because, you know, Chloe Zhao, best director winner, Chloe Zhao. Um, and it does have a large new cast of characters. However, the ending of the film, it does massively change the future course of the MCU. Um, so it's going to be interesting how they rein it back in. And obviously, you've got these two, you've got your post and mid, uh, you've got your mid credit scene, your post credit scene, they're both set up major, major shit going forward, which you'll finally catch up with on, David, when it comes to Disney Plus on the 12th of January. I know. I'm really hoping that Spider Man doesn't have any spoilers for the Eternals in it. Well, you know, that'd be your fault, won't it? <laughs> um, yeah, it and be. my last film that just missed out, probably for me, one of the action films of the year, 
Nobody. Yep, uh, Bob Odenkirk. So think Sol Goodman is Oldwick. And that's all I really have to say about that one. It's Oldwick. Not John Wick, it's Oldwick. Okay. Now, on to my top 10, David. Um, do you have a film at number 10? Because I can't remember what your... I do. Oh, what is it? I do. My film at number 10 is one of those films that, for us, it came out this year. All right. For America, it came out in December. Okay. And it is... Promising Young Woman. Promising Young Woman at number 10. At number 10. Interesting. Yeah. Remembering this was my like top 10s like, of like, films and TV. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's um, yeah. very good. You know what? I could have had my long list and this would have jumped up loads because I've got other films that I could have mentioned because I've got like The Green Knight that I really liked that didn't make it. Yeah. And I've got like quite f- comedies that I really liked as well. Um, well, before we get into the top anyway. tens, David, go to your long list. Tell me what missed it. Tell me what just missed out. <clears throat> okay, so yeah, The Green Knight. Yep. Um, I had other ones in there as well. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! I, I, I haven't seen the Green Knight. Well, it was between the Green Knight. That was what I was doing. So the Green Knight and Promising Young Woman were, were vying for the tenth spot for me. Right. And I put Promising Young Woman above the Green Knight because I feel like ultimately it's a more impactful and important film. Bigger message, yeah. Whereas the Green Knight was just you know art house uh, weirdness, very quite slow going, and I didn't I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed Promising Young Woman. So that's why Promising Young Woman's there. I think it is an important film for everybody to watch. And if you haven't watched it yet, you should go out and do so. Not because I'm telling you to, because society <laughs> is telling you to. Ooh, yeah. I mean, not wrong. Yeah, I know. I thought it was a thought it was a very very good film, and it's one of those shame, isn't it? It's a film that when it comes out really early in the year, people just forget about it by the end of the year rolls down. Um, yeah. Because I was thinking there was a lot of my top films came out towards the end of the year. And I was thinking, nope, nope. Got to remember, promising young woman's got to find a place in there somewhere. But it's not in my it's not my top ten, David. My number ten is. It's not in your top ten, promising on. No, I said, I said it's not my number ten. Oh, uh, that means it is in your top ten somewhere. Wow, you just ruined all the surprise and suspense there, didn't you? Dave? <laughs> yeah. So number ten, new film only came out a couple of weeks ago on Netflix, The Power of the Dog. Oh, this is the this. this is the film. Really yeah, well, I, I hadn't seen it. it. I've only just seen it um, last Sunday. So uh, now, if you like um, Naked Cumberbatch, then um, well, that's the film for you. But other than that, it's Jane Campion's slow-paced Western, which is more a portrait of toxic masculinity in 1920s Montana than the typical Western. Cumberbatch is on career-best form as the cruel and callous Phil Burbank, who cruelly taunts his good-hearted brother George, played by the ever-reliable Jesse Plemons, who stars alongside his real-life wife, uh, Kristen Dunst, who plays a widow called Rose, who Plemons marries. With Rose comes her teenage son Peter, and now he's very he's, he's got a very effeminate manner and a lisp. And sorry, sorry. Jesse Plemons is married to Kristen Dunn. Yeah, they got together on Fargo. Aren't they? Aren't they also married couple in Fargo? Yes, David, and that's when they got together in real life after playing a married couple in Fargo. Oh, is that? I didn't know. Oh, that's such a lovely thing to know. Okay. <sighs> yes, and with and with Rose, just in the film, not in real life, David comes her teenage son Peter, who is quite effeminate. And he's got a lisp, and he seems very out of place in the macho Montana landscapes of the 1920s. And uh, Cumberbatch's character, Phil, he's threatened by Rose and Peter's arrival in his life and the house that he shares with his brother, George. And he, 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 becomes, he begins his kind of subtle, cruel campaign of harassment and gaslighting against the two of them. You know, it's very, you know, there's, there's like a scene where um, Plemons buys a, a piano and he's, they're having guests around. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I heard. He goes, oh, no, but I'm not that good. 
and she's trying to play this song and she can't get it. And she's like, you know, getting really frustrated by it and really worried about she's got this party coming up and she needs to play at. And then she's trying to play this song and then Cumberbatch literally just walks in the room with a banjo and nails the song expertly, then turns around and walks out. <laughs> and, and like, yeah. It's funny that Cumberbatch, like, uh, he's the, um, the macho, he's, he's the masculine character in it. Well. The brute. He's not, like you wouldn't, like, of all actors in the world, would Cumberbatch come to your mind as a symbol of masculinity? Well, let me continue, David. It really is a four-hander between these four actors. I would say all four of them are currently awards-worthy, in my opinion. They're all excellent. And the film, here's the thing which hits right back on what you just said, David. The film hints really closely, well, the film hints subtly that Phil is a closet homosexual. Because it's set in the 1920s. Right, okay. And because at one point, um, the, the son, Peter, he finds his hidden stash of 1920s muscle magazines. <laughs> just like you know lots of shots of men in underpants like doing muscle poses and um you see like you know when like he takes his crew out uh they're like and they're all like in the bar drinking and hitting on all the women and he's just he's just sitting there come about so you kind of start thinking okay is is it this out or outer macho portrayal hiding his closetedness and they definitely hinted it and uh you wonder what his intentions are going to be towards the young peter and that kind of becomes the crux of the story, which I won't spoil here. But you start thinking, what is he going to do? How is this going to go? Um, right, okay. And it becomes, you know, and it's very good. It's very, very good. It's a very slow film, um, but it's expertly acted. And you don't know where it's going. Like, we were guessing up until the end when we were watching it. Um, every aspect of the film is perfect, man. The amazing cinematography. And do you know where it was filmed? For the American West in Montana, it was filmed in Central Otago in New Zealand. And you know, I was watching this, I was like, I wonder how many Westerns would be improved in the future from shooting in New Zealand. Uh, yeah, I think when the Oscars roll around later this year, this will be the one that takes quite a few of the acting awards. I think Cumberbatch, I don't know if he'll win, but he should be nominated. Dunst could be up for Best Supporting Actress. Plemons and um, Cody Smith-Mathie, who plays uh, Peter, both of them could be up for Best Supporting Actor as well. It's 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 that it's a proper actor's acting film, man, but in a good way, you know. Like he's okay. so good in it, Cumberbatch. This is probably the best thing I've seen him in. So, uh, do you have a okay? Oh, well, like better than uh, like intimidation. Oh yeah, Wait, yeah. Wait, that's not the... yeah, is it? That's Imitation not... game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I honestly, it's the best thing I've seen him in. So I think that's the best thing I've seen Cumberbatch. Well, now you need to watch this. It's on Netflix. Go watch it. Yeah. So my number nine film is Sound of Metal. Which I th- did that come out this year? I thought that came out. Last it came out twenty nineteen in America, um, and then it eventually came out over here twenty twenty one. But yeah, I mean, this film Riz Ahmed should have won Best Actor for this man, hands down. I mean, I, I you, you have you seen The Father, which Hopkins won for? Yeah, yeah. It's also quite. It's very good. Very. I like. Look, it was. It was quite depressing actually, because. Uh... Well, yeah. I mean, film. Granddad had it at the time, so. Uh, films about anyway. films about dementia generally aren't. And I mean, this isn't. Uh, They're not, yeah. This <laughs> they could be quite funny though. I had I had quite a laugh with my granddad when he had dementia because he. You've brought him. You've know, brought it up a few times, funny. haven't you, on the podcast? Where you say you're having one conversation and <laughs> but, then uh... yeah, but he got quite funny. <laughs> Some of the stuff he's come he'd come out with was brilliant. Like it'd be like if he'd think I'm like his mate from back in the day, and he'd be like, "Oh, that that bird last night and stuff like this," and you're just like, like granddad, I don't need to hear that. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, he's got. It's funny. Anyway, oh, no, that's, that's good, man. I mean, at least it sounds like you know it. It wasn't all like you know. At least that's that's the best. You know, you make the best of it, don't you? In those situations, and sounds like you did, man, which is good. Um, but I think for sound of metal, for what it did for um, uh, you know, awareness of, you know, how you said um, it's funny actually. I think this and the father kind of have things in common because you said with that the way they filmed it put you in Hopkins' place for um, seeing what it was like to have dementia. You know, the way it would cut yeah. between scenes, it's, and it yeah, was yeah, really. Yeah. Well, Sound of Metal does exactly the same thing, but with being deaf. So you can't hear what's going on in places. They they literally just turn the sound down, and you hear you you're put in um, Rizomed's character. Um, he's called Rubin, and he's a drummer in an avant-garde heavy metal duo with his girlfriend. And you you when he's you know all the like the the, the sounds like you're underwater and not being able to hear. You get that, and again, I'm not sure if I sort of a, there's lots of stuff to do with versions and the subtitling. And when I watched it, I'm not sure if there were supposed to be subtitles at certain points or there wasn't, because there wasn't. So um, there were subtitles at other points, but there wasn't when people were talking. And I feel that they've done that on purpose. And I could be wrong, but I, I think they did that on purpose so that as he's like dropped in suddenly with a bunch of people who were sign language in and he doesn't know what they're saying, so are you as the audience watching it. And there's lots of stuff that they do really cleverly to put you in his um, shoes, as it were. Again, not a barrel of laughs. It's quite a um, <laughs> no, yeah. To put it lightly, yeah. Um, so I mean, yeah, I think there's quite a lot, quite a quite a link between those ones. But again, I think Ahmed's performance in it was so good that he should have easily, easily um, got best actor. So that was Sound of Metal number nine. Uh, film at number eight, David, or what was it again? Remind me. We were on number eight, I think. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I have a film for this one. Ooh. Sorry. And no, yes. you don't have to apologise. What it was a film that I watched only about two or three weeks ago, Neil. And it's only recently come on to Disney Plus, which probably give it away. So Shang Chi Star, not Disney Plus. The last duel. Oh, the last duel. Excellent. Oh, what'd you think? The last We duel. haven't talked about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. I genuinely really enjoyed how they narratively told the story of this um, medieval rape, which might not sound like it's a barrel of laughs, and you know what, the film isn't really a barrel of laughs. Oh, well, I don't know, ben, ben Affleck is having a great time in it. He was, he was loving life with his ladies uh, and his drinks. His... But he, yeah, so it's the, how the story, so it was played out through three different perspectives yeah. of uh, the same events that happen within about five year period. And uh, and you see it from one character's point of view, and then you see it from another character's point of view, and then another character's point of view. And how it, I loved how it did that. My only gripe with it mm-hmm. is that when you saw the last character's point of view, yeah. So when you saw um, her point of, I've forgotten her name, Jodie Comer's. Uh, yeah, no, I meant the uh, the, uh, the 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 character. Uh, it's Marguerite, Marguerite, sorry. Marguerite, yeah, Marguerite. So when you see Marguerite's um, perspective, yeah. Uh, I really wish it wouldn't have said the truth. Yeah, but because it's because it's always the truth according to Sir Jean de, uh, Jean... you know, I'm, I'm bad. And then it's Jean de Caracas. Uh, it's like or Jacques Lagrange. Yeah, yeah. And then it's and then it's uh, the truth according to Le Glisse. 
but no, it's not the truth. No, 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 it's not. No, it only says the truth on her one. It doesn't say the truth on the first two. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, the, you know, but it does. That's how it starts with with all of them. It starts with the truth according to no, it doesn't. Matt Damon, the truth. Yeah, it does. Are you it sure? The truth according to Adam Driver, and then it says the truth according to Jodie Comer, but then it drops the jo- according to Jamie Corder, and it just leaves it with the truth. Okay. I wish it would have dropped. I wish it wouldn't have said that. I, I fi- wish it would have just kept it. I think so that way you, as the audience, can determine what which of these is an a- is actually the event. Because I think because of the time, obvi- I, I don't know whether it's because of um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know because of the time. I feel like if you'd have had more political intrigue into the story, I think you've got uh, really and- hung up on the wrong thing there. <laughs> That, anyway, no, but it just, it, I feel like if you would have left it more ambiguous, if you would have left it more... It's not supposed to be, though. To it's not supposed to be. Yeah, but yeah, but it is. No, it's it not. Is, not from her this point of view. This isn't historic. Yeah, this isn't historical. Yeah, but it, yeah, no, from her point of view. But when you drop the words and you just leave the truth, that takes away everything else from the film. And that's the truth. This is this is the actual story of what happened. Yeah, which is what they're saying. Whereas if you'd have left that as the truth according to her... Yeah. Then it's it leaves it as an ambiguous, and you can decipher which of these and pick pick moments from each of them as what actually happened. Look, look, I think I think when it comes down to it, right, chapter one, which is Matt. That's that's my look, biggest gripe. Yeah, I know. It was fantastic, and it's film, a, it's a silly gripe. It's a silly gripe. <laughs> it's not a silly gripe. It's a it's a genuine because if they'd have left that right, let me, and it would have left it as for you as the yeah, audience. I, I get I get the point. I get I get the point you're that's trying to massive, make. But taking that away. All from right, you Ridley, calm down. Stop yelling. It takes it away from stop you. Stop Stop yelling at clouds, young Ridley. No, because you're annoying me, Neil. Because you're wrong again. <laughs> you're wrong a lot in this episode. Totally not. Right. So let me get onto it then. So chapter one, right, is Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Mr. Happy, essentially, he's Mr. Happy in this film, isn't he? You know, yes, he's very. He, he does he does everything that he's supposed to do, but he's a bit miserable about it. Um, so his one is, and his is so again, he's not there, right? So you don't see that scene in his one. Uh, he just finds out about no, it. No, but it's how he reacts to everything. Yeah, well, his and it's his how reaction he's portrayed and how he's shown in doing. And so. that's what we'll get, his, car- yeah. his is more of a character reference. Yeah, but his we'll, we'll, we'll get on to, we'll get onto that when we talk about that bit in a sec. The yeah, when we talk about that scene later. Now the second chapter is Jack Legrease, which is Adam Driver's character, where you do see the rape scene, and then chapter three is Marguerite's scene, where you again you see it. Now I think the main thing in a film. And what it turns on is that very short scene where, in her chapter, she's dancing with her husband, with Damon, and sees him from the balcony and says, um, and just smiles at him. And he totally misinterprets that. And what the film is doing, what the whole crux of the film is that even in, um, um, even in the modern day, something that simple, because that's what a lot of people didn't like about it. The few reviews I read that were a bit sniffy, they kind of said, well, look, there wasn't that much difference between her version and his version. They thought it was going to be a lot more obvious. And no, it wasn't. It was literally a couple of small things that he took as an invention, which is why it happened. Yeah, all these su- subtle, subtle yeah. characters. And they were, subtle, they were, subtle moments. they were just a, two, two or three subtle moments that he misinterpreted. But because it's 13th century France, he went ahead, raped her, and he even says, oh, well, she was a lady. She put up the standard protestations. And it's nothing to do yes. with her. It's to do with 
Damon feeling slighted that he's taken her his property, which is his wife, which is how which you know is bad enough. And then of course you know the the film's called The Last Jewel. They're challenged to the jewel. Uh, we won't give away um, how it ends, but um, and the the thing is, if she, if um, Damon's character loses the jewel in the eyes of God, that means he was a liar, as was his wife, and she'll be burned at the stake as well. So like you see, I say, look, can we just like forget about it and move on? Because you, you see, uh, Damon's um, uh, mother keeps saying to her, her mother-in-law saying, "Look, all this shit, this shit happens all the time. Just get over it. Don't mention yeah, it. I don't cause, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't cause a scene." And she's like, yeah. she's no. Um, the thing is, I think why it feels different as well. They had a different writer for the third chapter, didn't they? They brought in Nicole Holosefner to write it, and you notice it that in Comer's performance, which again, I think why she should be nominated for an award is in the first two chapters you're seeing a man's perspective of what she is like. So she's very staid, she's very, you know, wifely. She doesn't really have a lot to say or do very often. And in chapter three, it's like a, the lights the lights are switched on and um boom, you, you get her performance. You get to see her do it. Um I just um I think it's obvious. Um I think well what I was trying to get through to when you were like ranting a minute ago about the the truth and the dropping of it. When uh, when the film ends and whoever wins wins the duel and whatever happens happens, you get an epilogue that reveals what happened to all the characters after the events of the film. And I think where you find out what happens there, that's why the truth actually seems fine to be on her section because it it rounds up. I don't want to give away a spoiler at the end, you know, but it it tells you what happened historically. So that is the truth. Um, you saying, "Oh, it's the truth according to her," but um, when you, like I say, the epilogue on the end of the film says what happened to all the characters and how how all their lives played out after this event. So that is the well. I mean, it's the truth as written, right? So it just—I think you got a bit too hung up on. I, no, you, I'm not. I'm not hung up. Well, that. That is, it's a small. It's a small. It's thing, a very small thing. Yeah, yeah. I thought, but it's but it's not. A, but it, if if you was to just have left it, it would have made it even better. If you'd have not <laughs> have made it so finite that this is the truth, this is what you need to believe. Well, I, I will. And if you'd have left it, because then it would have left it, and you'd have been thinking about all the political intrigues, and then you'd have been thinking of everything, and that she could have benefited mm. from potentially lying. She wasn't. But, but I don't think the film you really plays. You know what? And then you've got all of, and then the, the, you know, it puts it into a massive melting cauldron for you to decipher what's going on. Well, all all I can say it would have been better for it. Well, I think it's a very small point that you got fixated on there, man. But I, I, I yeah, I mean, I agree. It's, I think it's a brilliant film, and unfortunately, not enough people saw it. As of December fourth this year, it's only made thirty million worldwide from a budget of about one hundred and fifty million, and so yeah, technically, criminal, it is. <laughs> Unfortunately, Ridley Scott's gone on a few interviews and gone on a bit of an old man ranting, ranting blaming it on millennials. <laughs> he literally said on a po- millennials. I know he was on a podcast with Mark Maron um, last month, and he blamed the film's box office failure on millennials, saying, "I think what it boils down to is what we've got today are the audiences who are brought up on these fucking cell phones. They do not ever, any- they do not want anything ever taught to them unless you were told it on a cell phone." Which, I mean, come on, Ridley, you just made fucking House of Gucci at the same time, right? Which is a big steaming pile of ass. So, you know, <laughs> can't have it both ways. Have you seen it? House no, of Gucci? but seen it. I've heard it's terrible. <laughs> I... it's, you just said something. You've, uh, you haven't seen it. I've got no interest in seeing it, man. How do you know? It's just, uh, you, 
Was it another wet fart? I, I, I feel like it was a follow-through from what I've heard, man. Right, so um, my number eight, David. Here's a film I know you absolutely loved. Not. Oh, okay. Is, oh, okay. and it's a surprise, <laughs> because it is a musical. Oh, oh you, okay, yeah, you want, it's got Adam Driver in it again, hasn't it? Adam Driver, um, once again. Oh, what was that called? It's what you put. It's what, it's what you catch butterflies in. Shall we start? Something like that. David, what do you catch a butterfly in? A net. A net, exactly. It's called a net. <laughs> Boom. Love the punnage. Yeah, um, I thought on paper this would be terrible, and I'd absolutely hate it. And since I've um, and since I've seen it once, I've now seen it three times. I remember when we talked about it on the pod before. I um, I honestly couldn't tell whether it was utter shit or genius. And I'm now leaning heavily towards Genius Man. Now, you didn't like... the I mean, you saw the opening song out of context, so again. But you didn't like how they weren't great I singers. Seen it. I haven't seen the film. So, no. Yeah. But I sent you the opening song, uh, May We Start, by Sparks. And, um, yeah, I just... There's something about it, film. That is, I think the way it's filmed, the performances, it just draws you in, man. I mean, I think Driver is better in this than he is in um, Last Jewel, which is saying something as well. Uh, Marion Cotillard is brilliant. Um, Simon Helberg uh, as the accompanist, the accompanist. He's not. He's not actually in the last duel all that much. What driver? Driver. I mean, really. he he is. Uh, he literally gets his own chapter, mate. So I can't. He kind of is. He don't. You know, but he's not. Yeah, but he gets his own chapter. But it's like <laughs> he is a main character. Yeah, but he's. They're kind of all in it and not in it. <laughs> anyway, fantastic point. Yeah. So Annette, it's just it's such a bizarre film, man. I mean, I think if I'd seen Titan, that might have made the uh, bizarre film list. But um, what I like, what I love about it, man, is just each song's got a completely different musical style. You know, you go from like um, whatever that opening song is, which is just an earworm of the highest degree. I'm amazed it didn't turn up on my Spotify uh, Wrapped list for the year. But you've got like opera numbers, you've got angry loud numbers. There's there's a scene later on called "You Used to Laugh" when um, Adam Driver's character he's a stand-up comedian. And he's just having a rant at the audience and just swearing his head off at them. And the audience is singing back and swearing at him. It's brilliant. He like He's so unhinged in it. And like I said, I haven't really actually told you what the film's about. So yeah, Annette is a musical psychological drama film. And it's directed by Leo Carax in his English language debut. And it's uh, written by the Mal Brothers of Sparks fame. Um, with them doing the music and all the original songs and that. And the plot essentially follows stand-up comedian, edgy stand-up comedian Adam Driver and his opera singer wife, Marion Cotillard, and how their lives are changed when they have their first child, the titular Annette. Uh, One thing I will mention, David, is when we see Annette, she's played by a wooden doll. Yeah, it gets a bit weird. It gets a bit weird. Um, And then he, like, um, as a kind of the... the, um, the um as the story progresses the the doll starts singing and they're like oh let's put the doll out on stage and make the doll famous and it's like you're it's weird because you're you're always like are other people seeing it's a doll or uh, do they see it as a real person like it was it's that's still not clear to me um but it's yeah it's uh, honestly mate watch it sometime get through it um uh, and just be like i that's never a good sign when you've got well, to say get through it. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, I think it's probably one of the most original films I've seen of the year, man. It just it completely, um, I think when you watch a film and you're like, I can't tell whether that was shit or brilliant, and you're still thinking about it, it means it's usually going to be brilliant because you're still thinking about it after all this time, right? You're there going, well, what's, well, why is it still in my head? If it was that bad, I wouldn't care about it enough. So clearly, on some level, it's got its hooks into you, and you just can't keep thinking about it. 
So, yeah, Annette, my number eight. Now, David, what is your number seven? Was it a film or TV show? I think it was a TV show. Great. So we can skip to my number seven, and we can actually skip my number seven, because my number seven was The Last Duel, which I think we've... uh, which we've just covered off quite oh, nicely there. In a, um, have you had your um, blood pressure medicine since? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's funny because Cheddar started snoring during that, and I don't know if that's going to come across <laughs> in the. I, I, I don't know whether he was just bored of listening <laughs> to me as well, but he was going. <sighs> Excellent. Um, yeah. So number six, David. What is your number six? Uh, the Suicide Squad. Boom. Yeah, the Suicide Squad. It is, is indeed. <laughs> oh, hey. It's not number, number six, six no. Oh, it's going to be further. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah, no, James Gunn, the Suicide Squad, I think it did so much more and so much better than was previously done with the characters. The beginning scenes alone was probably like the storming of the beach. Probably right there, there, and then why it should be in my number yeah. one. <laughs> but and, and the film so like, it's, fun it's it feels low stakes and high stakes all at the same time and if you take this separately because with the D, dc is annoying because i keep thinking to myself that it's a universe when it's it, I sh- like the dc universe but i need to just take it's just it what it, it is film. what it is and if i do that and i and, and if i take it as its own separate entity it's f- f- fucking fantastic i mean john cena is uh, as Peacemaker, and I can't wait for the Peacemaker show. And I don't care how many um, men, women, or children I have to kill to get peace. Yes, oh, he's he, he just he's so funny in everything. Like even he, he just Elder as uh, Elder, sorry, as Bloodshot, as Bloodsport. Rick Flag uh, gets personality. Just even 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 Rick Flag, yeah, because he was in the first and, one, which yeah. Like well, you, you refer to personality. He you refer to is, him as boring army guy when we talked about the first film. Boring army guy. That was his yeah. character in the first one. It was boring army guy. And now guy, he's, he now he's hey, that. I'm fun no, army guy. Yeah, Margot Robbie is Harley Quinn's probably I would, her best I would agree with that as well. Harley she has Quinn. that brilliant fight scene where she escapes from uh, the compounds, which is brilliant. And just just the fake out at the beginning with the two teams, man. That was just amazing. I mean, and the music. I love the music. That's one of my favourite songs, um, People Who Died. Um, not actually that version, but the version from the original Dawn of the Dead. Uh, sorry, the, the remake of Dawn of the Dead. That James, um, Zack Snyder, done, which was written yeah. by James Gunn. So um, talk about a link there. As a film, from a pure yeah. entertainment standpoint, you can't go wrong with. Yeah, I just Squad. a big smile on my face, man. The whole time I was watching it, I was just like, I can't believe they're doing this. It, 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 it nails all the things. I mean, what was me? What? Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't even, man. It's just. I've got it's on my Christmas list, and there's this really cool looking um, 4K steelbook edition of it uh, that I want to get. So, um, yeah, everyone. I mean, Ratcatcher, mate. Can't not mention Ratcatcher. It was like the heart of the movie. You got David Dalsmashian, who um, polka dot man with his bizarre backstory and all that yeah. kind of stuff, man. Um, King Shark. We haven't mentioned King Shark, friend. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could be afraid. Just yeah. Well, that's why I mentioned the ones we didn't it? mention, and of course. Your main villain is a giant alien starfish called Starro the Conqueror. <laughs> it just he gets so many things right in this that um, they didn't get right in the original one, and it's funny because you see all this stuff online about release the air cut, release the air cut. We want more Jared Leto as a Joker. No, we fucking don't. We didn't want him in the first place. He was absolutely yeah. terrible as that. I don't think any. It's genuinely, genuinely, really frustrated <laughs> me how bad. Oh he was. yeah, man. I mean, 
because because he was coming off was after he was cast on that after coming off um oh that one where he's got where he's an agent yeah he won the oscar he's, didn't he he's a, he's a, oh, what's that dallas, dallas boys club yeah yeah what was that called dallas boys club thank you yeah he, he put he got into that coming off dallas boys club and i was like fuck yeah jared leto he was fantastic in that he's going to be playing the, like his whole and then you saw and then you started to see the um, you know footage of him or like the photographs you see the of him coming out like, as a joker oh, no. and then you and then you slowly and then you just think like, he was oh, sunk okay. from the images mate when oh, the images this, isn't, this isn't this isn't going to go down this isn't going to go down well and then but then when you get the trailer and you're like this is going to hurt really really bad and you're like okay it's well, going to be good again worry. it's going to be good again yeah because the trailer for the Suicide Squad was awesome the first that was one, the worry then, for this uh, one wasn't it because the trailer again was brilliant yeah and everyone was like yeah but the trailer for the last one was brilliant. I was like, no, in James Gunn we trust. It's going to be, and it's exactly what we wanted it to be. It was a Guardians of the Galaxy style turned up to like 11 with a lot of extra blood and swearing and ultra violence and alien goop. I uh, loved it, loved it, mate. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think, you know what, that that is currently the comic book film of the year. Sorry, Marvel, you didn't come close this year. Um, Com- Suicide Squad. Well, I mean, we Ooh. haven't seen Spider-Man yet. So, but for the purposes yeah, yeah. of this podcast... I think we can agree the Suicide Squad is the best comic book film of the year. Yeah, it's up right. there for me. Yeah, it is. The, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah, it's not, not film. film. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> it, is, it was, although it was a literal comic book. Right, moving on to my number six film, David, and it is another Amazon Prime film. Came out around April, May time, and it is very short. It's only 90 minutes. Yeah, and it has. Um, also, no. Is it a horror film? It also has J.K. Simmons oh, in it. Wait, no. Okay. Palm Springs. Oh, oh son of the Danish. Yeah, Palm Springs. Yeah, That's, yeah. I, I forgot all about that. You know what? I was going to add Free Guy into my long list. No, you shouldn't. But anyway, yeah, no, Palm Springs. Yeah, no, I think I prefer oh, yeah, Palm Springs I mean, Sandberg being Annie Sandberg as his best. Christy Milioti being awesome. And she's one of these actresses who has not really big or well-known. And yet, every time you see her in something, like, who's that actress? Oh, it's her. And then you see the list of stuff she's done, which is really good. And yet, like you say, I mean, it's essentially Groundhog Day, but at a wedding. And if we caught up with Bill Murray after he'd been doing it for fuck knows how long, because he's just at this stage. And then... Yeah, it's during it's during the montage of him just sort of trying to shag someone. That's that's yeah, where yeah. we're at in Bill Murray's life. And, it's, um, <laughs> and then, of course, what happens is he accidentally traps... Um, he, he, his character's called uh, Niles. And uh, Mia Lotti's character is called Sarah. And again, now we know that he knows everyone. Um, when he's obviously like hooking up with her at this wedding, she uh, ends up, there's like a whole weird K vortex thing. It's not really explained. Um, but it's, it's kind of that it's that kind of sci-fi thing where you don't really need to explain exactly what's going on. Um, and so it kind of, I don't know, the, the mechanics of the how and the why aren't as important in this. Basically, she just gets trapped in the time loop with him, which she's not very happy about. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, falling asleep, mm-hmm. dying doesn't do it. Um, they're just stuck there, and it's just, it's just funny, man. It, then, then once they kind of like she makes a piece with it, they just go out and have fun. Oh, and of course, sometimes J.K. Simmons turns up as a guy called Roy, who also accidentally got stuck in it, but he likes to hunt Niles and torture and murder him. And uh, it's just. It's just it's just a fun yeah. film. Here's a modern Groundhog Day, man. I'm a. I reckon if you're a, 
you know, of the age we were when, well, I was when I saw Groundhog Day, this would be your Groundhog Day now. You know, like how you say the mummy is your Raiders. I think this is modern day people's. Uh, I think that's that's. Don't you think this is good as Groundhog Day? It's in that league. Mm, I think you're pushing it in saying that, though. I don't think this film was as popular in any way as The Mummy was. No, well, no, but it came out in a pandemic era, man. So you can't really. But yeah, but the yeah, but the Mummy was also popular. That's why it's my Raiders, you know. It's yeah, well, because I'm not of its t- popularity as well. It's not. Just yeah, but we can't it's... we can't justify this on the thing because it came out during the pandemic, mate. And do you know what the budget for this film was? I don't know. Probably not a lot. Five five million. Yeah, it's set in like but, the same location the entire time. Probably. But not it came out. But it came out in July, of the middle, right in the middle of the pandemic in the cinemas. So obviously, it didn't make next to nothing. But no, man, I, I just I just really enjoyed it. So. um... Skipping ahead to number number five. What's your number five, David? Number five, we're on. Yeah. <gasps> Last night in Soho, Neil. Hello, which I got to round two. Yeah, we haven't talked about day. this yet. Right, I'm, I'm going to say we haven't talked about Last Night in Soho yet. No. Right. Okay. So um, let's. Right, okay, we're going to put a spoiler warning in here because we need to talk about it. Give me an S. Give me a P. This is taking too long. Spoilers ahead. Yeah, well, wait, I obviously enjoyed it because it's on my number five. My there was I again. I have a gripe. Okay. I have, as I do with most things. Yeah. And that it was quite obvious. Really? Well, you think the twist? Yeah, yeah. Who, who? Well, the twist at the end was obvious. You thought that? Yeah. No, I didn't think it was at all. Yeah, I mean, it was obvious mis- misdirection with the bloke. And it was ob- and it was obvious that she's the only other elderly character in the film, and it's a woman. And it was so obvious that it was going to be right. So, so what you're saying is, you first time watch, you you knew that um, Terence Stamp's character. Uh, again, I think before we get into was specifics, before we yeah. get into specifics, let's actually let people know oh, okay, what sorry. Last Night in Soho is about. So, yeah, Last Night in Soho is a new Edgar Wright film, which is a psychological horror film, uh, starring Thomas McKenzie, Annie Taylor Joy, Matt Smith, uh, Terence Stamp, uh, Diana Rigg, oh, and Michael Ajo. Who um, I didn't really like because he was he, he was the most wettest he's, bland boyfriend character of all time. I kept he was so cre- he was a bit creepy as yeah, well. Yeah, he was. A bit I felt creepy. like I quite I enjoyed him I, because he was creepy. I think they they left that in there just to make you have him as a red herring potentially. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. The main character is uh, Thomas and Mackenzie's character Ellie uh, Eloise Ellie Turner, who loves the music and the fashion of the sixties, dreams of becoming a fashion designer, has her mum was who also unfortunately killed herself. When she was a kid, so she now lives with her grandmother. She also does occasionally see her mum's ghost in mirrors. So I thought, oh, that's going to be a big thing. That's going to happen. Um, then Ellie goes to college to study uh, at uni, and she's like the odd one out. She's got an absolute monster bitch of a roommate, and um, she finds up. She ends up moving out and getting this little place in, would you know it, Soho, owned by the elderly Mrs. Collins, played by the late great yeah. Dame Diana Rigg. So okay, was it her last film? As yeah, well? well, that's why it says for Diana at the start of the film, or is it the end of the film? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it was her last. It was her last film. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah. Um, well, also the the bar, the woman who uh, her boss at the bar, Margaret Nolan. It was she also it was her last film. She died um, before it came out as well. No, yeah, was she really? Yeah, yeah. She was. How old was she? She can't have been very old. Well, um, old enough, I guess. Um, but um, that first night when she's staying in Soho, she has a vivid dream, and suddenly Ellie is back in the sixties. But when she looks in the mirror, she is... Well, if we're being specific here, Neil, I think it was her second night. Because the first night she spent awake at the uh, whilst the party was going on. That's why I said the first night in Soho. 
They're both. Is it not? Are they not both in Soho? No, because the first night she's in the the one. Where's her dorm room? Is that not in Soho? No, she's in a completely different part of. London, Nothing is it? Yeah, it's only when she. It's, it's all the same. Yeah, but she's got to be communicable. I don't know. Whatever. That, 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 that doesn't make any on. sense. Why would she have a vision of what's going on in a place where nothing went on? It's when only when she moves into the bed set. Soho's massive. No, you're, you're talking out your ass on this one, mate. It's when she when she gets into the um, bed set. No, that I know has what you're on about, but she, that's not when she has a vision. Yeah, it is. It's... So that's you saying her first night in in, Soho. in the location. Yeah, in the location in the bed set. Not in the, the dorm flat. The dorm flat, there's nothing going on there except she she just dozes off in the thing. Then she wakes up and she's late. She wouldn't have dreamed of Soho yet if she hadn't stayed in the apartment yet with all the bodies in the walls. Yeah, but... Yeah. Okay, yeah. Soho is quite massive. Soho is quite big, though. Let, let the point, covers, let the uh, point, quite small, let the point go. Let the point go. <laughs> but yeah, so when she when she has that dream the first night in Soho, in the bed seat owned by Mrs. Collins... She wakes up and she, when she looks in the mirror, she doesn't see herself. She sees um, a young blonde woman called Sandy, played by Annie Taylor Joy, and it's she kind of they're mirroring each other's um, things. Um, so every night, then she starts seeing Sandy slowly go on this journey to, you know, she wants to become a singer. She meets Matt Smith's uh, charming manager guy Jack, and then of course that side of her life then starts bleeding over into her modern life because she starts getting inspired to draw Sandy and you know. But then it goes a bit dark, doesn't it, David? Yeah, yeah, it gets... Jack's not very nice. Sure. (laughs) It definitely takes a turn. He's not the nicest of gentlemen. She ends up becoming a prostitute. Yeah. And that's... uh, And and we see uh, Matt Smith murdering her. Or do we? In uh, one of the visions. And and then there's also um, our main actress, whose whose name I've forgotten. What's her name again? Thomasin McKenzie character uh, Eloise, Eloise sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah Eloise is um, haunted by all these men with just all these men from ghostly the men 60s. yeah yeah ghostly men just sort of figures sort of just about everywhere and they're all the men that uh, are Anna Taylor Joy um, Sandy oh, they're all her gentleman callers of well, and um, that, uh, she's being haunted by. But what's what's clever is, and um, and it's it, it almost comes. I mean, it's, yes, it's. A, would you say it's a horror film? Or would you say it's a psychological thriller? Because it's psychological thriller. Yeah, it's not out and horror. out. Bar the stabbing scenes, there's nothing really stabby in it. There's nothing really like. Uh, well, no, the, the the like I the ghosts. That's the that's the horror element yeah. of it. And it's but it, more than the stabbing. What, the stabbing what, is not really. What horrible. I liked, just what I liked was the the blending of where you know she's seeing it in the daylight and she thinks she's going mad. I love that that they and I think the whole thing with the mother killing herself and her. I mean, how many times does she scream and run out of a room in front of her classmates? You know. <laughs> yeah, everyone. I, there's a there's a reason why everyone sort of doesn't like. I, I guess she is that sort of person where you kind of avoid in real life because it'd be like, okay, they're a bit crazy. <laughs> Yeah, you would though. Like, if you're being brutally honest, you probably would avoid them. Yeah, if like, because yeah, I mean, you'd like reach out as well and be like, "Are you okay?" But at the same time, from that, I, if, from that, I know, just get yeah. that, her, that that John, the boyfriend, was just kind of like he was really desperate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I did. I mean, so you knew. So what? That's what I'm trying to establish because I didn't see the twist coming. I thought, okay. I, why does it need to have a twist? No, I thought it was. Yeah, I didn't no, think it needed to have it. it was... I mean, I I was fine with a twist, but as I was watching it, I was just like, but once you've seen it a second, see, once you watch it a second time, 
then you... I agree that it didn't need it as well. Well, no. But, but that's, that's one of the no, reasons no. why it was a good film, so, even with the twist. So are you um, in the camp? Because a lot of people think the first hour and a bit of the film, the first sort of hour and 20, are brilliant. But then the, the final act twist and reveal of Miss Collins being um, Sandy is a, is a letdown. You're firmly in that camp, would you say? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's a letdown. I just say I just think it was. It wasn't as maybe as big of a shock reveal as it it could have been. I mean, I, I did love the bit that she'd clearly planned it out when she says, "Oh, it's okay." When when they find you, they'll think you just killed yourself because everyone thought you were a nut job anyway. I was like, "That's brilliant," and that's been seeded from like the get go in it. I, I did keep wondering yeah. whether more was going to happen with the ghost of a mum in the mirrors. Because that was really... Yeah, enough, that didn't... Go anywhere. I feel like we might have missed something further with that. And if we'd dive a little deeper no, into no, the No, 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 there's not. I've watched it. Into the film, I've watched sorry. it two, three times, man. I've read loads on this. There's nothing really more to it than that. And it's funny because okay. when you... Well, it's, just, it's just planting that yeah, seed of... Uh, it's just setting that up. It? It's setting up a mental yeah. state as the film goes on. Um, but I do like the fact that the ghosts aren't actually after her. The ghosts are there to warn her. But then I don't get that. Well... The, well, the ghost actually, no, it's a weird one actually, because the ghosts want her to kill um, Sandy, aren't they? So they are yes. kind of vengeful, but they're not vengeful towards her. They're almost, it's not that kind of Del Toro thing where the ghosts are actually good people who are murdered him and trying to warn them about the live killer still. It's kind of actually they were scumbags who were murdered. And it, it's kind of that weird, well, whose side are you on at the end? Yes, she was taken advantage of, and then she killed Matt Smith's character. But surely she she did just she should have just stopped there then maybe, but yeah. she just kept going on. So I think it definitely pushes her fully into the villain side of things. But and I suppose that's done so that you can see how Ellie doesn't go down that path herself. Although I did like it when she almost stabbed a bitch roommate in the face with a knife. That was pretty cool. Oh, the scissors. I know. I really oh, with the scissors. Yeah, I really wish she did that because yeah. she pissed me off. She, oh, she, she was so good. And if you think about her, her as an actress. Because uh, I was only looking at this, just this, what's her name? Um, Jocosta was the character oh, yeah, yeah. name, right? She, her, I, if you look at her and then you look at Diana Rigg from about. Oh, when she was know, the eight, same, similar ago, age, yeah. They look quite similar. Oh, so do you think that casting As, was um, on purpose then, maybe? I don't know if it was on purpose. Or just happy, happy accident. It, I'm, I'm thinking that, I don't know, I just feel like it, they, they look quite similar. If you if you look at Diana Rigg from like fifty years ago and this lady, but but then but Anna Taylor Joy looks nothing like Diana Rigg from from um, th- that time. Anyway, well she kind of does. Right. So anyway, yeah, anyway. So yeah, loved it. So yeah, there's two there was two characters. I mean, I, I I'm waffling. I, yeah, yeah, clearly. And I I really loved it, man. I mean, I I thought like everything was spot on. It production design visually. It it looks stunning. All the neon, all the, the, the I mean, I'm, it's funny because my, my parents watched it the other week and they absolutely loved it. And I was I was on a bit sure. I thought I know they're going to love the first hour, but then when the ghost stuff starts coming into it, are oh, they going to like it still? And like my mum's like, I don't do horror films. I was like, oh, okay, well, but you know, it's got all loads of sixties music in it, and and they loved it. So I think the horror stuff isn't it's, enough. Yeah, um, and it's it's, it's yeah. almost like the the Who Done It thing at the end, and like you know, uh, so yeah, I was. Um, I, 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 it's funny at the end when people have got I saw a bit online you know the very last scene is you, you know Ellie's now a successful fashion designer she has a show with her grandmother and John and then she sees her mum in the in the thing and she gives her you know she sees her mum smiling and he's like oh nice ending and then you see Sandy there yeah who waves it and everyone's like oh there's going to be a sequel that's like no it's just a cool bit to put on the end isn't it 
There's, there's no, there's, I don't, you know, you can't read anything more into it than it's just a cool shot to end the film on, right? Well, can you read it? No, you can't. It's just a cool shot to end the well, film. Well, well, but can you, Neil? No, you can say, can you? It's an ambiguous ending. That's the, that's the whole point. It's not. It's not. It, it is. Of course, it is. Well, that's like, isn't that the definition <sighs> of an ambiguous ending? An ambiguous ending would be if uh, someone dragged her into the mirror and she was stuck in the mirror. That would have been cool, actually. I just thought of that now. And then, yeah. Oh, I thought of a better ending of that. What do you reckon? She she sees Annie no. Taylor's character in the mirror, right? And then she gets pulled into no. the mirror. She's stuck in the mirror. No. Then Annie no. Taylor joins her in no. the real world, and the film ends. No. Yeah, it's better. No. Yep. No. Right. Well, we're done with that one because no, you're, you're talking out. You're talking out. You're. Anyway, it's not. Uh, you was you were saying that it's Edgar Wright's best film. I disagree. I still think Hot Fuzz. See, yeah, but I, I didn't think Hot Fuzz was in the first. But I, I thought Scott Pilgrim was. What I like about this, right? And you think Scott Pilgrim yes. is better than Hot Fuzz? Yeah, sorry, I do. Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, I love Scott Pilgrim, man. Versus the world. Do you know when we did our top ten best films earlier in the year? Scott Pilgrim was my is better than film. is better than Hot Fuzz, in my opinion. Okay. But now I think Last Night in Soho is better, and I'll tell you why. Because and this is what then Hot Fuzz. <sighs> Look, get over it, David. Get over it. <laughs> Get off the hill. Okay. You can you can say you can sound surprised as many times as you want. What this film does for Edgar Wright is it shows him expanding his directorial palette. Right, he isn't just making the same film again and again and again. He's not doing like the buddy comedy, Hot Fuzz, Shaun of the Dead, World's End stuff. Uh, even even um, Pilgrim, which had its you know it had that traditional Edgar Wright humor. This is him going. Look, I want to be a film director who can do different genres, I can do different stuff, and I'm going to do that. I'm not going to... You know, there's a couple of little bits in it. There was there was maybe one joke that sounded like it was from an Edgar Wright film in it, when um, John's saying about, well, how would I get there? You know, from East London, was it South London to North London? <laughs> that joke there, that was delivered in, like, the Edgar Wright style. But I like it, man. Like, and But people did complain, oh, well, it doesn't feel like his other stuff. I was like, yeah, that's good. That means he's, he's growing as a director. He's doing his stuff. I mean... He is one of my favourite directors, man. I don't think he makes better stuff. Even Baby Driver was kind of like his first American big, like big style American film. Because technically, you know, Scott yeah, Pilgrim. Baby Driver's better than Scott Pilgrim. Get it? off this podcast! What are you talking about? I'm really, uh, I'm really confused how you spot Pilgrim's. I love Scott I Pilgrim. Know. Oh, yeah, it's a good film. I like it as well. It's not a bad film, but it's definitely not his best. It's brilliant. It's, it's it's brilliant in a bunch of ways, and it's got Mary Elizabeth Winston in it, which also makes films. But, I mean, like you said, he hasn't better. done a bad film. No, like his worst film's probably The World's End. Yeah, yeah, I think we all agree on that actually. So, in my number five, David, we can actually skip over again because it was Suicide Squad. All right, okay. So, my number four, which again we're we're shooting from now, guys, because uh, my number four we've already talked about, which was Promising Young Woman. Oh, okay, that was quite high up on yours. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean. It made an impression, man. It's it's you. What you don't see that it did. It certainly did do that. You yes. don't. And like like we said at the time when we talked about it, um, the message of the film was so strong that. And it, I mean, there's so many parallels if you think about that between that and the Last Jewel. In the even 1300 years ago, or even in the 13th century, shit like that, people were still getting away with. And yeah, this, yes. And this is like yeah. the modern day version of it. Right. So my number three film is Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, again, um, absolutely loved it, man. As I, as I said on the last podcast, um, it it's it wipes the slate clean from the 2016 film, which again 
we we've talked about that so much. We don't need to talk. We about don't that. need to talk about that again. Um, what I would say is where people were worried about like it being YA'd and you know, oh no, they're bringing kids from Stranger Things into it. Um, actually, probably the weakest thing in the film is the kid from Stranger Things. It's just character. You honestly didn't really need him in it. I mean, the main kid, uh, okay. the main kid, Phoebe Spengler, um, played by McKenna Grace, is brilliant. And her mate, Logan Kim, was podcast. Is he Egon's granddaughter? Isn't yeah, it? Egon's granddaughter. Um, the, the adults are great in it. Carrie Coon, who plays her mum, Callie Spengler. Um, and she doesn't really know her dad. And um, Paul Rudd, I forgot Paul Rudd's character name, Gary Gruberson, the substitute summer school science teacher. <laughs> and was he was was because I remember from the tra- one thing I wanted to ask you actually about this film because I I wasn't sure of Paul Rudd's relationship with uh, the mum. He's trying to bang her. He, okay, okay. Um, cool. And what I like about so they're not. He's not because I thought that there was a father figure. I thought he was could have been stepdad sort of thing already. But no, no, no. He's he's he new. He's new in the film. He's like he's a summer school teacher, and um, he's he's only taken a job because he's. He's like a scientific expertise in seismology, and he—he he, you find he's a fan of the original Ghostbusters, which is funny because he doesn't actually know that the girl is Egon's daughter, um, and and he makes some spectacular fuck ups in it as well, man. You're like you're supposed to be a scientist, man, and you some of the shit he does. You're like, okay, let's run away. <laughs> There's a bit where they they do something bad and he runs away, and he like goes, hey, you're an adult, and he goes, yeah, and as and as an adult, I'm liable. Let's run. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got. I love Paul Rudd. Yeah, there's nothing you can't really. Paul Rudd is Paul brilliant Rudd. in everything he's in, man. But I forgot the character name. I think he won Best Looking Man of the Year as again. Well. Yeah. Um, but what this does is, and like you said when it brings back the original Ghostbusters, which you all know it happens, they don't overshadow the main cast in the new film, and it's just done in the right reverential way. I mean, some of the really bad reviews of this film have said, "Oh, it's 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 just fan service, and it's just." Um, Retreading the it's first film. It's just fan service. Yeah. Like, that's a bad thing. Exactly. Well, it is when it's done badly. I guess being just fan service. Well, I, I think, bad, I think but... some of the reviews have said, look, it's bad because it's, it's just absolutely on purpose ticking off a list of stuff to get people who are fans of the original to buy into the new one. Um, and right. it's, it's, like, it's just there to make money. That's, like, that's, that's, the, that's the bad version of it. But what I think pushes this film past that and makes and what makes it work for me on the emotional level is because Harold Ramis passed away before they actually got around to doing this and if you know that in um Ramis and Bill Murray were really good mates and then they had a big falling out when they were working on Groundhog Day together and they didn't speak until years later when Ramis was on his deathbed where they buried the hatchet but obviously with Barrett um Barrett obviously with um Obviously, with uh, him, uh, I forgot the bloody guy's name. Obviously, with Harold Ramis gone, they, they, they really shut down the chances you were ever going to see it, this film be made. And the whole mm. film is a tribute to Harold Ramis. There's loads of you know original footage from the first film in it. There's loads of other. Um, uh, what's good is when they move it, uh, the, the the family of uh, the grandkids and the daughter they move into his old abandoned farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, and it's like a treasure hunt. She finds a ghost trap somewhere and she finds a PKE meter you know um, her brother Trevor um, by Stranger Things said he finds the car and as the film goes on it, it is it's ticking off all the things but it's done in such a reverential way and yeah some people say oh well it's not as funny as the first one it doesn't have to be funny if his heart's in the right place and the ending of the film mate like I said most people in the cinema were, especially around my age were just in floods of tears 
because it was done so well. Like people were just like, ah. and um, any film that does that can't. Any film that done that, if it gets that reaction out of the audience, it's done what it's achieved. You know, the whole point of film is to get that reaction, is to have that emotional experience in the cinema, and that's what that that's what Ghostbusters Afterlife does. And for everyone moaning about, um, oh, it wipes away, you know, the, the women's film and all that. The main character is a teenage girl, and she's the best Ghostbuster in the whole film. And everyone wants to see more of her in, hopefully, an ongoing uh, film, an ongoing series. Because you do have post-credit sequences, David. One that's just a typical... Oh, God. Oh, it's brilliant in the post-credit sequences. They have two, it? mate. They've gone full Marvel. And the first one is... Oh, dear. The first one is your typical throwaway scene. But it's a nice inversion of an original scene from the first film, which is nice. And the second one, it, crea- it the second one sets up where the franchise could go next which is good, and it also rehabs one of the most poorly served characters from the original film, and that's all I'll say. Number two, we can skip for me, because my number two was Last Night in Soho, which I think we've talked enough about. Nice. So here we are. Number one, Neil. Number one. Your most favourite thing of the year, my most favourite thing of the year, I think we all know what it's going to be, and it is... June. June. Not the month, Dune, not the month. Dune. Should we say it at the same time? Let's say it at the same time. June. Dune. June. Uh, that was close. On, that was on close. We almost had it seen. One, two. <laughs> One, two, three. June. Dune. Oh, Mate, the podcast is going to be Did eight hours it? long. No, we didn't. Do you know what? I'm just going to edit it so oh. we said it at the same time and it'll work. Hey, editing. Huh? Going to cheat it. Go on, David. Okay. Splooge all over Dennis Villeneuve. Uh... uh... How, what can I say about Dune that we didn't say in our previous episode about how it was perfectly... Perfect. How it transported you to a whole new world, the world of Arrakis, where spice is the currency of life, essentially. And the interpolitical landscape... That's going on the battles of the Harkonnens. And the Atreides. And the Atreides. And remember, David, who, he who controls the spice controls the universe. Controls the universe. And remember, fear is a mind it killer. It was... It was honest. It was... It's, if, this, if I was making a top 10 all-time list again, this would be right up there for me. Ooh. It's how much I... Although I have only seen it the one time. Yeah. But I, my, my enjoyment levels from that one time were fucking right up there it was it, it I, 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 I the 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 immersion of but you felt like you were fucking there and the the the, the worms the how they visualized the worms were as good as as what you can imagine reading the book this those sandworms the, the, the sheer scale the sheer otherworldly it was almost it was almost like um lovecraftian to an extent, how well depicted the sand worlds, the sandworms were. Well, the size of them, the sheer scope and unimaginable. The, sh- the sheer, yeah, but the, and and how you're just insignificant, pale in comparison to these mythic creatures. You know, these these were these were worshipped <laughs> in Arrakis, and it's and the film as a whole. It was it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't. I, I can't. I, I, I just, it's hard to ex- describe something. You sound so like your tiny little brain is going to explode. Majestic. David. 
It's, it was it's, majestic. It's literally though. like we've turned your brain and vocal patterns to uh, superlatives at the minute because that's all I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. That's all I've got. It, it, it is... Do you know what? It's actually the third adaptation of June following the 84 version in the 2000 miniseries. Um, and yeah, it's just... It is... It is, as we said on the thing, it's Star Wars before Star Wars, because as we've all covered, Lucas spectacularly ripped off elements of June for Star Wars. Um, and it's basically Star Wars meets Game of Thrones. Scheming intergalactic families, murder. Um, and I, I like I said, I think what sets this apart and what drew people in, because um, I think the, what's made it such a hit isn't just oh, it's Star Wars meets Game of Thrones, despite being them, despite it being an amalgamation of two of the biggest franchises of like recent times. Um, but what it does is it's in, in the, it made people have to see it in the cinema because of the sheer scale, size, and spectacle. Uh, on the last one, we talked about the cinematographer, uh, the Aussie guy, who um, I forget his name at the minute. Oh, Greg, Greg Frazier, that was it. And, yeah, throw all the awards at him. Well, I mean, in, betwe- in between this... Doom one and Doom two. He's just gone off and done the Batman. You know, he did Rogue one. Yeah. So <laughs> throw everything at him. Give him. Give him what he wants. Give him. If, give him the like, freedom. Give him what he deserves. The freedom of Australia. Yeah. I'd imagine. The freedom of Arrakis. Well, no, because that just give him that. I, That's the world he created. Him. Well, he didn't create it. You know, Frank Herbert did. But you get what I'm saying. He visualized it. And Dennis Wilberg, like give it, give him best director, give it to him, just give it to him. Yeah, that's going to be the thing, actually, right? Because we, when this came out, visual effects, give it to him. Okay, shh, shh, calm down, calm down, take a chill pill. So, um, when we first um, saw this uh, a, a few months back at the cinema, we did not know if we were actually going to get part two because of um, obviously the pandemic. That, I mean, how that was even a thing is crazy. How like. Uh, yeah. Well, fortunately, David. How could they not finish this? Well, I mean, it's happened. Like, I mean, fucking cowboy bebop. But there we go. Um, so the budget. It's the, I mean, you can't compare. You did not just compare finishing Dune to cowboy bebop. I mean, they happen in space. That's all I'm saying. But anyway, the budget of Dune was 165 million. But thankfully, it took 383. It took 383 million. And again, you wonder how much stuff they filmed. Well, it, that's criminal as well. We like. How is I mean I know why it's only taken so little because fucking the world COVID yeah yeah fuck the world but uh, it, I mean it deserves so much more so much more money for, than that I mean it's it's it's, it's amazing to think that Villeneuve just hasn't made a bad film man has he you know every film he makes is a five star classic so I mean I, yeah. I, you yeah. know like they talk about um, Spielberg's hot run in the eighties where you know it was like what it's Raiders of the Lost Ark it was E T it was um. Uh, Color Purple. I'm trying to um, Temple of Doom, and what was the other one in between? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, I forget, but like, the, um, Scorsese had that run in the 70s. You know, it was Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. Yes, yeah, yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Villeneuve is on that kind of run. He's on that run. He's on that run. Yeah. I mean, Christ, if you look at it. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I haven't. S- what was the first uh, f- film you'd watched from him? Uh, I think the first thing of his I saw was probably it was either Sicario or Prisoners. I think he might have been. Pri- so mine was mine was prisoners, yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean, I watched prisoners first, and then I went back and watched, uh, and then I went, sorry, and watched Sicario. Yeah, and I mean, Sicario is brilliant. Arrival is one of the best sci-fi films again, I'd say of all, of all time. If I if I did a top ten sci-fi films, I think Arrival would be on that list. Yeah, Blade Runner as well. Blade, yeah, Blade Runner as well. 
And it's it's funny because you look at those two previous films and everything he's kind of explored and done on those led him to June, really, in a way, didn't they? You know, he's like, he's like yes. right, I know how to shoot all this stuff. Uh, even if you don't look at it from a creative point of view, you look at it from a technical point of view. Right, how do I do big green screen and big location shoots? Um, how do I shoot, you know, just from a, a technical point of view, how do I film that in a scene? Right, I've done it now. It's not, I'm not, he's not doing it a lot of it for the first time on June. He's taken all this knowledge and expertise he's put together and learned and developed on his earlier films and just combined it all into June. You know, it's almost like, I suppose if you'd asked him earlier on, would you have wanted to made it, make this before Arrival or Blade Runner? And I wonder where he would have, I wonder if he would have said yes or no, I need a bit of time. I mean, he probably would have jumped at it, right? Who's not going to jump on it? But just waiting to get that chance to know that you're in a position where, yeah, I can do justice to the source material. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, just the, the the cultures he create like that. You genuinely created this world. You well, felt like you were there. Oh, I know. You feel like Arrakis is a real place. Like almost like you're watching the. You know how Star Wars is like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You genuinely feel like this could have happened at some point in history, almost like or some or like it's something you're seeing a portal into the future. I've, I, if that's how fucking real I felt watching this film. Yeah, I mean it's um. It's a masterpiece, isn't it? Hands down masterpiece. And I'm just wondering, because it's only the first part now, as we know, part two is confirmed and it's definitely being made. Um, is it going to clean He's up? He's got to put a lot of pressure on himself. Uh, I don't know. I think he, I think in a way... He's pull, pull it off because he will. Yeah, he's amazing. I don't think, that, I don't think there's but... as much pressure. I, in fact, I think he's in, a, he's in a better position, mate, because they, were, they didn't know whether one would have the crossover appeal to be a big hit. And it was. And in a couple of years' time, hopefully we're way over this current level of bullshit that we're dealing with, and things will be back to normal-ish, which means more people will go to the cinema and see it. And what else are they going to do? They're going to re-release June before the, the uh, part one, before part two comes out, which will, again, drive up the box office on the original, which will make it more profitable. And um, as we said on the last one, by then we're going to have an IMAX cinema uh, about a 20-minute drive away from where we both live, which means... Whereabouts? Ashford. Ashford's getting IMAX, is it? We talked about this on another pod, mate. Literally, did we? I told you, and we. You know when what? We, when you, we yeah, reviewed, when we reviewed June <laughs> on the actual episode, and I said, "Oh, oh, oh okay, cool, cool, cool. And, you know, I've got and, a bad memory." God. Goldfish didn't, didn't cut it in the hut. Goldfish doesn't even come close, mate. Um, yeah, we said at the time in twenty, and 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 now it's confirmed because I've just been googling. Well, I googled beforehand. I pre-googled, if you will. Um, June Part 2 is confirmed with a planned release for, for October 2023. Amazing. It's in pre-production at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and like you say, oh, by the time that comes yeah. out, you know they're going to re-release one. So you and me will both be able to go and see one and t- Part 1 and Part 2 back-to-back in, in IMAX. Um, in IMAX. Yes. <sighs> yeah. Oh, it's going to be a good day. I mean, you know, that's all that we have to stay alive for for the next two years, David, is just to see June Part 2 in IMAX, that's it. Called it a day after that. Yeah. Pop me in. Leave it. That's pop me in one of those boobs from Futurama. I'm done after that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, unless he's going to go on and do uh, Children of Doom, which was the third one, I think. But don't quote me on that. No, Doom Messiah. Doom Messiah. Sorry, yeah. The second. Doom Messiah. Second book, yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, whew. Okay, David. It's the end of the year. We have done 
26 podcasts this year from after starting in February. So we haven't actually done a full year yet. But I know. This has gone on for nearly three hours. We are almost up to Empire Magazine. We started at like 9.15. It's now 12.23. Yeah. We are up to Empire Magazine spoiler levels. Let me start again. We are up to Empire Magazine's um, Mission Impossible spoiler podcast levels of length here. We are pushing in on three hours. This is like when those guys talk about an MCU film and there's five of them doing it, David. Four or five of them. This has just been you and me for almost three hours. I know. I don't know if that's a good thing. Well, you know... I'm so sorry to anybody that's still there. If, if you're still there, can we just say, <laughs> I'm sure you by now have drunk the rest of your uh, Christmas uh, alcohol. I'm sure the mince pies are gone. And... All that there is to do now is to do exactly what we're going to do. To have a drink, have something to eat, and have a little nap. Merry Christmas. We'll see you in the new year. Oh, oh, oh. We needed roads.